Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. What you're about to listen to is a re-airing of an old podcast uh, episode of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. My name is Robert Winfrey. You're about to hear from me a bit more as we get into the episode proper. This episode was the second in a series I did looking at professional wrestling heels. Everyone Loves a Bad Guy covered a lot of ground. And at the time, I was more a fan of professional wrestling than not, and my fandom with professional wrestling has waxed and waned over uh, love big part of my life. Sometimes I'm very much into it, sometimes I'm not, it, it comes and goes. And I figured that any podcast, especially with my group of friends and uh, accomplices, <laughs> collaborators, uh, wouldn't be complete without a discussion about professional wrestling heels. Uh, so this episode was not the first. The first episode focused specifically on the territory days. It is not. It does not yet have a re-air time, but... Uh, so you understand, I'm going to intro this a little bit in the episode proper, but this is not the first episode. This episode focuses on the rock and wrestling connection and boom of the then WWF in the 80s. So we, uh, there's a lot of discussion about different professional wrestling personalities over that particular period of time, again, focusing on the villains, focusing on the heels. With the exceptions of Rowdy Roddy Piper and Bobby the Brain Heenan. Now, those might seem like big omissions to you, but they each got their own show. I don't know if they're going to be re-aired in the immediate future or not, but uh, suffice to say, for the moment, this is about everyone not one of those two guys. My guest for this particular episode is Steve Cook. He continues to write for both 411 Mania and places like The Chair Shot. Uh, a good discussion was had here. We had a lot of fun, and I'm... Uh, anxious to get you into it, so uh, let's do the last couple of things before we get into that. First up, please do like, comment, subscribe, share around the podcast any way that you can. Second, I'd like to thank our sponsors. First up, we have Amazon Music. Uh, In professional wrestling, uh, it's somewhat apropos that I get to talk about Amazon Music here because the connection between wrestling and rock and roll in the 80s was a big one. That's one of the things that led to the WWF's boom. That's all been well-documented. But if you would like to go back and listen to any of that music from that particular time period or whatnot, Amazon Music has an enormous library of streaming songs, and we are giving away a free 30 days of the Amazon Music Unlimited service. There's a link in the description below. It's getamazonmusic.com slash w2mnetwork. And if you're, you will get a free 30 days of that particular subscription. It's a wonderful service. You can get m- movies. Not movies. That's Amazon M- Movies. You can get music. You can get podcasts like this. Uh, feel free to give that a check. Just click the link. Fill out the little 
form they ask saying who sent you and begin your listening enjoyment. Our other sponsor is Grammarly. For you listeners of the W2M network, Grammarly is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively, something we all could use help with. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes, while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M network. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash W2M network to download Grammarly for free if you don't want to type any of that into your search bar or whatnot, there is a link in the description of the podcast. Give that a click, and that will take you over to that particular function. All right, that's it for the plugs. Thank you again very much for listening. Throwing it to myself from 2014 was our original air date for this one, July 18th to be more specific. All right, pass to me. Take it away. Steve Cook is going to be joining us. 
Conveniently enough, as we talk about professional wrestling's big boom in the early 80s, uh, specifically because I don't want to drum through a bunch of different federations and all that fun stuff, I'm, we're just going to be talking about the World Wrestling Federation on this podcast. And uh, I, was, I asked Steve, he said he'd be interested, so hopefully as soon as all that stuff gets worked out, he'll be on, he'll be ready to go, and we'll get moving on that one. Uh, my last show... I focused specifically on territories in the pre-boom days. I had Pat Mullen on. I had a lot of fun. Uh, Apparently a lot of you have enjoyed it. All right, we're going to see if this connection is going to hold here. Uh, Nope. Seems not. He keeps cutting out. Uh, For those of you who don't know how the studio works here, I'll give you... I have a list of, like... It's my switchboard, and he's popping up every now and then. I don't know if he's constantly cutting out or if it's blog talk screwing with us or what have you. It could be any of those, really. I mean, blog talk's a twitchy program. So the next time his thing pops up, I'm going to see if I can unmute him and get going before he gets cut off again, and we'll just see how that works. This is live, ladies and gentlemen, and this is some of the benefits of live radio. Things can go wrong. All right. Uh, A little bit of backstory while we get this technical stuff figured out. Uh, Early 80s, it's kind of ensconced in the... All right, hang on. Here's Steve. Let me see if we got him here. All right. Connecting. Come on. All right. Steve, you there? No, seems not. I have no idea what is causing this. So I'm going to, we're going to try and get this sorted out again. I apologize, everybody, um, but it's essentially a free service that <laughs> we're providing here. But in the mid in the, you know, starting into the 80s, Vince McMahon, uh, Vincent Kennedy McMahon, still r- owner of Now World Wrestling Entertainment, decided that he would take his father's regional promotion and make it national. He was going to expand. He was going to compete. He was going to buy up talent. He was going to drive the other guys out of business. He was going to make himself an empire. He managed to do it. Uh, very successful. But it started in the 80s, and that's kind of where we're going to start here with this one. All right. We're going to try this one more time here. All right. Steve, are you there? That's me. We're going old school now. We're going to use the old school. Well, this old school is smart time can be, really. You know, it's old school is like a Verizon probably can be. I, I want to get, like, a rotary phone and dial into this one of these times just so I can say I did it. That'd be nice. My grandma used to have one. I don't, I'm sure it's flying around somewhere. <laughs> I probably used to get it. That'd be a cool time, but uh, glad to be here. It's a good time. I, I, you know, the blog talk, difficulties on Friday night, nothing new. So, you know, I'm, I'm used to it. We, we roll the punches here. It's all good. Yeah, yeah. All right, so I just, uh, I don't know how much you heard. I gave a brief synopsis of, you know, Vince McMahon wanted to make a professional wrestling empire, and he managed to do that successfully. But I wanted to, okay, first of all, uh, first, I, you and I mentioned this briefly in our talk on Twitter. I'll let everyone else know. There are two names that are going to be conspicuous by omission for essentially this podcast. Now, they might get mentioned, but by and large, we're not going to delve too deeply into Rowdy Roddy Piper or Bobby the Brain Heenan. The reason being, the next two weeks are going to be devoted specifically to those two guys because I have people who are willing to talk about them for hours. So rather than try and shoehorn everything into this one little bit of time, I'll give those two guys, they each get their own podcast, and come back next couple of weeks for those. Yeah, future future shows. <laughs> I can show yeah. early. So, minus those two, the WWF's expansion really kind of kick-started with Hulk Hogan. Hulkamania was the driving force behind the then-WWF going from a regional northeastern promotion to global powerhouse. So, the first guy I want to mention, I, in a transitional role, a guy who had a lot of heat 
and bear in mind, if you didn't hear last time, uh, our show last time, when I say heat, I don't mean people booed him. I mean people wanted to physically harm this individual. And now, I mean, nowadays the Iron Sheik's kind of a meme because he's so crazy. But, I mean, back in the day, he was a, you know, there was a lot of legitimacy about him, about his skill set, and about, you know, again, people wanted him dead, not ju- and part of that was, again, the cultural differences between the, you know, America and Iran at the time, which is where he's built from. So, how was, you know, you're a fan of this era. What are some of the memories you have of, in particular, the Iron Sheik? Uh, the Iron Sheik, uh, you know, like you said, a quintessential transitional champion, because he was that bridge in between Bob Backlund being champion for five years and nobody ever beating him for the title and whatnot. And then finally, on December 1983, he puts Backlund in the camel clutch in Madison Square Garden, makes him humble, wins the title. Now, everybody was shocked to see the Iron Sheik win the title. But it didn't last long for poor Sheiky baby because next month he's facing Hulk Hogan and it's time for the next era. So the Hulk Hogan era began on the back of the Iron Sheik and what better guy to begin the Hulk Hogan era than the Iron Sheik? The evil, the evil Iranian, you know, the big Iran hostage, hostage crisis, a big deal back in the early 80s. And uh, Iron Sheik, uh, you talk about how everybody hated him, how he would get, like, real-life legitimate heat. He didn't have to worry about, like, people trying to fight him or anything because he was, like, a legitimate tough guy. This guy was, he was, like, a wrestler in 1968 Olympics, legitimately. He was a coach for U.S. in 1972 after he made transition over. When he came over to the U.S., he trained under Vern Gagne, and he began training guys at Vern Gagne's school. The guy was a legit tough guy. You would not want to screw the Iron Sheik back in the day. And I still wouldn't want to screw the guy now, because he seems like he's got a couple screws loose, you know. So Well, now he's got insanity. You don't screw yeah. with a crazy guy. <laughs> no, but even back in the day, Iron Sheik was a guy who could hold his own. He could have been one of his old-school NWA champions back in the day, because you could take him to any promotion or whatever, and you try to shoot an Iron Sheik, it's not going to go well for you. And Sheik had a great uh, foreign heel gimmick, which you guys talked about on last week's show, and that was a, uh, that was a traditional heat getter. It still is to this day, to a certain extent. Iranians yeah, never... Got so much heat, he got fired. Yeah, yeah, and who knows what's going to happen with Rusev here coming up with uh, uh, things picking up over Mother Russia, but you know, as it may, Iron Sheik... Uh, come out, Iran number one, United States, Akka. he had the great Freddie Blassie in his corner for a long time, Blassie had, leg- had some legitimacy there, uh, his, and after he was done with Hulk Hogan, which, I mean, he wasn't going to beat Hulk Hogan, everybody knew that, but after that, uh, he had a nice feud of Sergeant Slaughter in uh, 1984, like, uh, they had some classic matches during that time period, uh, the boot camp match in Madison Square Garden, a few other matches, uh, Slaughter was making the face turn at that point. Remember, Slaughter had been a heel for a while leading up to that. And then he saw Iron Sheik, and he just got tired of Iron Sheik hating on America. It started in Slaughter's country, for God's sakes, and started doing the Pledge of Allegiance. So basically, the Iron Sheik helped build up two of your top classic American databases, Paul Hogan and Sergeant Slaughter, too. Yeah. I saw, I don't remember where, it might have been on a, one of the old Legends roundtables that the WWE used to produce, it might have been on a YouTube clip somewhere. I saw the Sheik do this thing with the, with the Persian clubs. Yes, where he yes would, the Persian clubs. What the, I looked at him doing that, and I got tired just watching it. I mean, I don't know how heavy those things were, but for anyone out there who's, go ahead, look it up if you've never seen it. And imagine doing that with something that weighs as much as those things. I mean, I don't know if they were... 
legitimately as heavy as, you know, it's wrestling, so, you know, you add five or ten pounds to make it seem more impressive. But by the same token, even at just, like, 30 pounds, I mean, moving those things yeah. around, my, I don't know how you do, I mean, that takes serious skill. Uh, yeah, Sheik was a skilled guy, a strong guy. He could back, back himself up as far as, you know, wrestling went, as far as strength went as well. A very legitimate competitor. And uh, he also had a tag team with Nikolai Volkov that uh, lasted for a while in the 80s, and they won the tag team titles at WrestleMania 1. So Iron Sheik was a key figure in that as well. Even if he, even if he wasn't in the tag uh, title scene still, he was a rung below, you know, Hogan and Piper, Orndorff, all these guys, but he was still in the middle of the card. He's still getting great heat with Volkov and with Blassie. And later on, of course, uh, the Slickster. And uh, definitely he was a guy that did a lot of good things for WF in the mid-'80s. And then he, he got in trouble a little bit later on. Were you, were you going to talk about how he got in trouble with Jim Duggan? Sure, go ahead. Do you want to mention that? Or... Go ahead. <laughs> I'm fine. That's a funny instance. Yeah, I know. I was saying go the ahead. Thing with, yeah, the thing with Jim Duggan was it's kind of ironic because Iron Sheik was the classic heel, the classic bad guy and whatnot. And... Unfortunately, he had, the mustache to prove it. he had the mustache, the evil mustache. You can't forget <laughs> that. But, but then one night in New Jersey, he gets caught with uh, his rival at the time, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, in a car uh, doing drugs and whatnot. And the bad part, of course, wasn't that they're doing drugs because it's wrestling. Who cares about that? But you got a heel and a face driving together. They're fitted with each other. For God's sakes, man. Kayfabe lives. Yeah. Well, apparently not. <laughs> No, I, I've there, heard but, about uh, that. That was crazy. I mean, uh, it's the 80s. No one cares that they're doing coke. Everyone's doing no, coke in but, the 80s. Yeah, nobody, yeah, everybody's doing that. There's not no big deal, but they're traveling together and they're feuding. I mean, Bill Watts would have probably killed one of them. I don't know which one, but there's crazy stuff there. <laughs> even even the cowboy wasn't going to shoot on the Sheik. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. But uh, Sheik's also known for his, uh, you can't say he's a very eloquent speaker by any means. But he certainly remembered his promos. They definitely stood out among the pack uh, for being uh, bizarre, if you will. A lot of the great ones, that, you know, the memorable guys, don't necessarily have the best promo in the world. I mean, the Warriors fondly remembered. Hogan could get a bit uh, excited and a little bit verbose. So it makes sense that it would be on the heel side as well. And yeah, but at least with Hogan, but the important thing with the Sheik was you care. The Sheik did care. The Sheik jumped yeah. out through the screen at you, which a lot of these guys, especially in the 80s, that, and there's been there's been speculations of why and why not, and whether it's because they're scripts now and because the world has changed a lot of different ways and whatever, but definitely in this era, the guys, the personalities jumped out through the screen at you. Whether you knew that, I mean, we're not going to sit here and say, oh, everybody knew that wrestling was uh, was real and legitimate and whatnot. You still want to go out and see the Iron Sheik as but Yeah. I mean, yeah. Even if even if you know it's a show, that doesn't necessarily diminish your emotional response to it. You might still go, "I hate that guy. I hate what he's saying. I wish for Hulk Hogan to crush him." And that formula yeah. worked pretty well. Yeah, it worked pretty well for a pretty long time. The Irish Sheik still, uh, for years, made a living off his character, and when that stopped, he he's making a living doing doing other stuff now. God bless him. And I don't know how much his percentage now as a work or a shoot or whatever, but. Whatever it is, it seems to work for him. You know, he's out there entertaining people. And you know what? You can't fault the guy. <laughs> if he's if you're paying to see him, he's going to give you something. As long as he's not you know, doing anything illegal, you know. Yeah. All right. Moving on to another one of the top heels. Okay. 
you might have to correct me here, but I don't ever recall the Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase being a good guy. Did he ever um, have a face run in the World Wrestling Federation? Yeah, not, not in that persona. No, not not as the Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase in World Wrestling Federation. Um, in Mid-South Wrestling, he had a, a face run briefly there. He had some face runs early on in Territory Days, like in Georgia, places like that. He's like a fresh-faced uh, young kid working his way up the ladder. I mean, now back in the time when he was, like, working Georgia, there was a chance where he, if he was in consideration being the NWA champion, and that never happened for one reason or another. But he did, he, did a lot, he did some face work back early in his career. But definitely later on, for most of his Mid-South run, certainly in his WF run, he was definitely cut out more to be the bad guy. And the Million Dollar Man was uh, the quintessential, um, you know, he was the 80s guy. This is personality going around 1980s guys like Donald Trump and all the all the billionaires running around out there. You know, greed is good. That was the catchphrase of the 1980s. Everybody was, you know, that's what people were seeing everywhere. And DiBiase, he played that role of, you know, the guy with all the money that looked down on everybody. And that's kind of a role that's great for wrestling because wrestling tends to uh, attract an audience that's not made up of uh, millionaires and billionaires. It's a lot of guys that are, uh, you know, working nine to five, just trying to get by, trying to put food on the plates of their loved ones. You know, guys, sons of the plumbers, like the dusty rose of the world, if you will, daddy. Uh, DiBiase, he played a character that was nothing like most of those people. He he was like those people's boss, you know. He was the guy that uh, he would have these people work for him, and they would think about how much they hate the people that have more money than they do, and that made him the classic heel character, and, uh, this was the character, of course, that when Vince McMahon conceived it, it was a character that Vince himself always wanted to play. When, when he came well, up with that? the idea, he basically said that if he were, Vince said that like if he was a wrestler, that was the character he would have wanted to be. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, I'm pretty sure he actually told that to Ted. Well, yeah. The other thing... Ben Patterson that, told him, actually. <laughs> something wouldn't surprise me there, either. One of the things that struck me about that, about... Ted DiBiase was not just his commitment to being the million dollar man, but kind of a latitude he was given by the office, for want of a better phrase. Oh, I mean, yeah. he legitimately had stack, you know, he'd pull out, you know, he did the thing where he would get someone in there and ask him to do something humiliating for a hundred bucks. No, I got 200, I got 300. I, you know, he'd go on, but he actually had that much money. Yeah. He, he was, uh, he had to live the gimmick. He had to live the gimmick. That was the key part there. So he had to travel first class. He had to travel by limo. He had to stay in the five-star hotels because you can't have Ted, the million-dollar man, rolling up to Madison Square Garden in, like, a Ford Pinto, you know? Yeah. That's just, that wouldn't work. The, kid, the fans would see that, and they'd just shit all over it. It would not work for that particular character. And I think it plays to what the company thought DiBiase as well because there were probably... A, I mean, most people you cannot trust with that gimmick. You cannot. That's <laughs> you true. You can trust most wrestlers. They would not give most wrestlers like you know gobs and gobs of money because you know full well that every time they show up for the next show, like uh, they'd be with their hand out, they would need more money. Well, one of the story, and uh, I heard him on Steve Austin's podcast a couple of months ago, and. One of the stories he told, one of the things he said was Vince actually came to me and said, all right, I've got something else I want you to do. Now, don't abuse this, but if you're in a restaurant, you know, every now and then you can, I would like you to stand up, tell everyone, this is who I am, this is what I do, and everyone's meal is on me. Mm. And it is, I mean, 
it almost boggles the mind that you would have a guy, I mean, that you would trust someone that much. I mean, I don't know what he did to earn that degree of trust, and to be, I mean, he kept it, too. I mean, it, it's amazing yeah. that you would, especially in the world of wrestling, which is, like, high school, quite legitimately sometimes, on steroids. Yeah, I mean, you never hear too many crazy stories about DiBiase behind the scenes. Of course, later on, I mean, he, he would probably tell you worse stuff about himself than anybody else would, to be honest with you, because I remember his, his first book came out, and he was talking about how he went down to the bottom in the gutter and whatever, and they wound up finding religion stuff. But, no, um, you never hear, like, all sorts of crazy stuff about DiBiase. He was a businessman, you know? He was a guy who was all about the business. He grew up in the business. His father, Iron Mike DiBiase, um, back in the day, and, of course, Teddy... Teddy was trained by the Funks as well. So he had a solid wrestling background, all about the business, if you will. He was willing to do what was right for, you know, the, the business. I keep saying the business, but that's what Teddy Biasi was. All right. Do you have a favorite of his uh, – there's a few other things I want to get in, but do you have a favorite of his uh, heat-getting moments? That you like, because – and I'll just bring up mine. The one where he called up yeah. the kid – and said, I'll give you a thousand bucks if you can dribble this basketball ten times. Uh, yeah. And then kicks it out at, at nine. I mean, that's <laughs> just, like, the worst thing you could possibly do to somebody. It was, yeah, it wasn't too good. He had a lot of sketches like that. I think the one thing that, the, I think DiBiase's main story there, I mean, certainly early on, he wanted to be the World Wrestling Federation champion. And if he couldn't earn it on his own merits, which he could have earned it, he probably could have. But he decided he wanted to buy the title instead. So, of course, you have the whole gimmick with him and Andre and the fake, re- the fake Dave Hedner and the main event. That the whole deal goes down. And eventually, all washes out. Dibiase doesn't win the title. So, of course, you since, he can't, dogs, man. Yeah, since he There's can't buy the we'll, we'll get in the honky talk. Oh, yes, I love honky talk. But uh, since Dibiase can't buy the World Wrestling Federation title that's been ruled out, he goes off to this uh, jewelry. He goes off to this jeweler. And I love it because he also walks in like wearing this like vampire type cape, which is pretty awesome. Oh, yeah, okay, you got a lot of rich people wearing capes. That's always, always a good time. That just shows I wish I had a you cape. know you're evil. You know you're evil when you're in a. I mean, good guys have suits, have capes, and they have suits, but they don't wear the cape with the suits. I think bad guys wear <laughs> capes with suits. You know what I'm saying? That, that, that's a very true. It's a very astute observation. I hadn't noticed that, but that's quite true. Some, uh, that's some heel and face fashion tips right there. You know. But uh, Dibiase, of course, walks in with a cape and the suit, and they show off this, the, the million-dollar title belt. That's uh, the gold belt with the silver studs and all stuff, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars, and Dibiase becomes a million-dollar champion. And uh, that leads to all sorts of uh, other stuff going on. Um, you know, of course, he had the bodyguard Virgil. I remember the classic suit with uh, Ted Dibiase. As Dibiase had a, he never held the, a big title. Because it's a different era where not everybody held the world title. Like, I mean, nowadays everybody's a world champion several times over, but Jack Swagger's a world champion. Jack Swagger's a world champion, that's right. Heaven help us was a world champion. Yeah. But DiBiase didn't need to be the world champion because he had the million-dollar title. And hell, later on he won the tag team title just for uh, kicks and giggles with Erwin Archeister, his money incorporated. Another uh, team that got into people's, uh, kind of made people very angry. So, Nobody no, likes the IRS. Never, no, certainly not. And DiBiase was never a face during this time period, and there is never a reason for him to be. 
because there's always uh, something he could do, whether it be shooting with Roberts or with with Roddy Piper, or whether it be shooting with bodyguard Virgil later on, when Virgil sees the light, thanks to Roddy Piper. Oh, that one, yeah, that was a good one, uh, him and Piper. Man, Piper is a face. Get into this a fair amount either next week or the week after, but it, it was so, he was so good either way. But we just mentioned the honky-tonk man, so I want to go ahead and uh, bring that up real briefly, and then I actually want to touch on Andre's heel turn. Um, but the honky-tonk man, yeah, as the Intercontinental Champion. The greatest of all time. What in the world? <laughs> led us to that point. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, what happened was uh, Honky Tonk Man started off as, like, a good guy, uh, theoretically. Came in doing the Elvis impersonating bits. He was, I think he had the endorsement from Hulk Hogan, even, but it wasn't quite getting over with the people, so they had the poll. Like, I don't remember if they had, the, I think they had the Verdant WF magazine, if memory serves me correctly. Like, uh, do you approve of the Honky Tonk Man? And uh, the majority of people did not agree with the Honky Tonk Man, so he became a bad guy. It's uh, it's kind of you know it's kind of before its time, really, because nowadays you have like athletes and everybody pretty much polling the public, trying to figure out what they should do, because nobody can make a decision anymore. So basically, WF yeah. let the fans make the decision here, and Honky Tonk Man became the bad guy. So it's kind of ahead of its time in that regard. But uh, the reason he became champion, the Intercontinental Champion. You know, Ricky Steamboat won it from Randy Savage in that classic, classic, classic WrestleMania three match. And Steamboat uh, needed some time off because he wanted to go home and be with his wife while she was having their kid and whatnot. And, uh, you know, that was fine. But on the way out, he had to drop the title of somebody. And there's been lots of different stories about uh, what led to it. Some, who knows, who knows what exactly happened. Basically, the honky-tonk man wound up getting a knot. He steamboat on, I think, his uh, superstars of wrestling. It's so not too long after WrestleMania three, and then honky-tonk man just keeps on holding on to the title. And uh, either nobody can beat the guy or nobody can pin the guy or whatever, but it gets under the skin of the fans for sure. And all in all, for God's sakes, the Arcanel title is a lot more interesting during Honky Tonk's reign than it, was, uh, than it is today. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I don't think I'm making doubt that. Uh, it's a shame that it's not used properly. I mean, the sad thing is, and this is truly sad, ladies and gentlemen, what I'm about to say, but in contemporary wrestling, and someone who's more of a fan of the product than I am, I'm a... Eh, I'm aware more than I watch and take in, so feel free to correct me here. But the last thing I remember being kind of interesting or entertaining regarding the Intercontinental title was when Santino Morella had it, and he had the honkometer. 
Well, and that plays right into it. You know, even to this day, people still remember the Honky Tonk Man. And as the and he calls himself the greatest international champion of all time. And well, you can argue about. I mean, Randy Savage is obviously better in ring, and you know, guys like Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, people like that. But hey, nobody held that belt longer than the Honky Tonk Man. Just as a brief aside, nobody anyone, ever will I, either. That's that's. I don't know. You know, if they let Barrett keep it while he was injured, I think he'd be, have the record beat. The best chance of that happening would be they forget it exists. JTG kept the job for a couple of years. Crazier things have happened. Quite possible. I, I still believe that Paul London and Brian Kendrick held the tag team titles for a year because they forgot about them. <laughs> they forgot. I'm pretty sure it's it entirely possible. Well, yeah, they were also that's, on that's SmackDown a, at the time, and no one cared. But, you know, I mean, and we can take shots at the Honky Tonk fans, uh, his work and whatnot. And he, his character was, was classically annoying, which, you know, as far as, like, annoying heels go, Honky Tonk Man's uh, top-notch in that category. One of the best. I, I couldn't think of a better one off the top of my head who just made you, you just set your teeth on edge. Why? Why are you still here? Yeah, and, and it's not like you can even, you can't even say, like, in the case of Savage, you, you can really deny Savage's ability in the ring to have a great match. I mean... Savage is going to be turned face eventually anyway, and I'm sure we'll talk about him later. But uh, I'm just comparing him to the Honky Tonk Man here because you can sit here and say, well, the Honky Tonk Man is one of the best workers in the World Wrestling Federation. He just couldn't really do that, and that made it easier for him to keep his heel heat going. And, uh, of course, the Arcanal title reign it led to an awesome moment, though, which was the goal for the whole <laughs> title reign to begin with, the awesome moment where Honky Tonk Man finally loses the Arcanal title he loses it to Ultimate Warrior under a mitt in SummerSlam as in Square Garden. Puts the Warrior on the map. That, everybody, if you've never heard it, if you've never seen that particular clip, find it and watch the reaction of the people, <laughs> mm-hmm. not just when he comes down. Him coming down gets a pretty good reaction. When, they hear when the he music. wins, when he actually gets that three count, that place goes nuts. Because the Honky Tonk Man finally lost. That's... That bastard finally lost the title. Thank it's God. morning again in America. Yes. Ultimate Warrior and Ronald Reagan. God bless America indeed. But uh, <laughs> that was the whole goal of the whole title reign, to uh, have that classic moment where it, it makes the one guy the next big thing, and it certainly did that for the Warrior. And, you know, after that, Honky Tonk still hung around for a while. He had the he had the classic tag team of Rhythm and Blues with Greg Valentine, which had Greg Valentine dyeing his hair, which is hilarious. Greg Valentine has black hair. That, that is fantastic. That's so wrong. It really was. It, just, it, it did not look right at all. It, it's hilarious. Oh, um, yeah, that must have been. All right, of course, uh, the, the Colonel Jimmy Hart in the Honky Tonk's Corner. Oh, yes. Speaking of annoying personalities. Yeah. We might get to the Colonel at some point. I don't know. All right. I, I wanted to touch on, uh, want, I to touch on Andre the Giant turning heel. Now, the yeah. reason I want to do this is, I'm not the greatest wrestling historian in the world. So, I'm, so when I, my memories of Andre and, and my knowledge, not so much memories, but for the longest time, he was, he was first of all an attraction. And understandably so, given you know, the fact that he's a giant, you don't want to wear out your welcome. In the sense that, oh, Andre the Giant's on TV. I mean, nowadays we have the big show. And, oh, big show's just on TV again. I mean, come on. The guy's, he should be special in that sense, and sadly, the you know, overexposure and whatnot, he isn't right now. Right. But was Andre ever really a heel prior to turning on Piper's Pit, uh, coming out with Bobby Heenan 
in that Piper's Pit segment? If he was, it wasn't uh, it wasn't long term anywhere. It wasn't uh, particularly advertised by anybody. But uh, um, as far as I as far as I could tell, going back through the annals of time, whenever Andre popped up in any territory, he was usually the good guy coming in, coming in to have battle royals and win battle royals and take on the top heel in the territory or whatever. No, if he did, it was it wasn't. It wasn't an ordinary thing, certainly. And whenever he appeared on WWF television, obviously, he was always the uh, beloved good guy. So definitely when Andre uh, turned against Hulk Hogan, it, it, was, uh, it was definitely something that shocked America in the role, I mean, for that matter. To this day, that's one of the most chilling things you can see, is uh, him coming through that curtain after being introduced by the great Bobby Heenan, and he looked so completely different. I mean, yeah. Andre... He never. I don't think Andre gets the credit for his ability to kind of manipulate an audience because you know, we all. You know, he's very fondly remembered, and rightfully so. And there's a lot of fun memories associated with him. But when you really look at some of the things that he was able to do, he. I mean, he comes out and instead of typical Andre attire, he's got a suit. He cut his hair, and he never smiled. And he always had the the big smile. You know, like I said, he was kind of the happy-go-lucky big guy. Yeah, and now, he's a big, friendly giant. And now he comes out, and he looks at Hulk Hogan like there's already a tombstone on his head. I mean, that's one of the coldest looking. glares I've ever seen. Indeed. Um, yeah, it's it something else, that's for sure. And uh, Hogan was shocked. Everybody was shocked. And Andre, of course, uh, yanks out the crucifix and uh, cuts Hogan on the chest. It was just, uh, it was go time from there. And if they needed something to fill up the Pontiac Silverdome, that was definitely it. Hulk Hogan, of course, being the Hulkster. And if there's somebody that is big enough to be somebody big enough to be enough of a threat of, to Hogan to fill up that Silver Dome, it was definitely Andre. I mean, I, there weren't too many other, uh, not too many other choices, to be honest with you. Certainly not on Andre's level. No, I mean, having a guy like that, you know, I think it was Chris Jericho who I heard talk about it on a countdown one time. Like, you know, you kind of knew Hogan was going to win, but you couldn't for the life of you figure out how. I mean, That's you, right. Because you know, Hogan was the good guy, and the good guy has to win, and especially in the, the World Wrestling Federation, which was, a, a contrary to a lot of other promotions, tended to have a baby face on top. Yeah, that's what they like. So you, you got used to the good guy winning, and now here comes Andre, like, well, I, I'm pretty sure Hogan's going to win because Hogan always wins, but how in the world are you going, is he going to beat Andre the Giant? And there's also the fact that if Andre didn't want to put Hulk, Hulk Hogan over, he wasn't going to. And nobody That's was going to make him. You couldn't. What, what would you do? I mean. You'd have, you'd have, you'd have to shoot him. Seriously, you'd have to shoot the guy. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, and that might not work. Yeah. Depending on where you got him, it might not in the caliber of your weapon. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to bring something large. It was definitely a tall order for the Hulkster. Head in the WrestleMania three, and it uh, filled up the Silver Dome. And of course, the match was what was. At this time period, Andre was not the. Uh, he wasn't the performer he was back in the day. If you go back and watch his matches in like the seventies, the early eighties, the guy could move around. He could do some good stuff. Um, not so much kick. in this back. I mean, that's way back. But yeah, he could he could go back in the day, and uh, not so much. But by the time eighty seven rolled around, he was not in best physical condition. The uh, the, the the giantism disease was kicking in. He couldn't 
he, he had trouble getting to the ring most nights, but uh, he, he, he was able to do enough where he was a smart enough worker where he figured out, he knew his limitations. He's able to do enough to uh, make the match work. And uh, definitely, that whether you think Hogan versus Andre is a five-star match or not, it definitely accomplished the job it set out to do. Yeah, and it, it was fitting that, I mean, yeah, there was the screwy ending when uh, Hogan, when Andre got the belt and then surrendered it to Ted DiBiase. Well, technically, yeah. he surrendered the tag team championships to Ted DiBiase. He wanted to keep the world title for himself. Well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's true. These things happen sometimes. Andre, another one of these, not always foreign heels. Sometimes when you get these Frenchmen out there, they're not quite sure exactly what the English uh, equivalent is. So they're they're a little confused from time to time. And uh, well, I mean, even in that wrestling a free match, remember earlier in the match where Hogan tried to slam him, and Andre lands on top of him. You know, they they had yeah. the whole thing. Was it a three count? They weren't quite sure. Yeah. It was two, but uh, it's close enough to the near fall for it to still be an, an issue throughout 1987 into the main event. And into WrestleMania 4, where they faced off again, they had the no contest there. And uh, it was just crazy stuff, man. And, uh, you know, then, then Andre starts working Randy Savage. He starts working off with Warrior. Has the tag team with Haku. Which, uh, him and Haku had some good matches, I thought. Especially considering Andre's continuing limitations. But uh, that's yeah. pretty much his last, his last major moment was uh, Lost Wrestling at 6, the demolition. And then uh, Andre, basically Heenan blaming Andre for the loss, and uh, that wasn't one of Bobby's smarter moves, really. Kind of dumb on his part. For a man no, called the Giant, I mean, seriously. Yeah, don't, don't, don't piss off the Giant. It, it never ends well. Yeah, it, uh, I will say this. It was good that he got to have his, uh, you know, face moment at WrestleMania, courtesy of Bobby Heenan. At the end, yeah. At the end. And he had, great, and he had a good run on top as a heel heading into, uh, heading into the end of his career. That was basically, I mean, before that heel run, basically, he was, he figured he was done pretty much. He figured that he was, he, he was hurt, he was ready to retire, he was doing the Princess Bride and stuff like that, and basically one thing that could bring him back uh, was something different, was that heel turn. Yeah, I, I imagine Vince did a heck of a sell job to him. Oh, yeah. And then, but Andre is another one of his heels that, the, I mean, uh, getting, uh, getting from place to place was, had to be incredibly difficult for Andre. Just uh, you know, with uh, with my, with technology being what it was, and you know, vehicles and airplanes and stuff like that, getting around had just had just to be you know oh, hell on God. earth for Andre. But he was I, he was another guy who didn't have he didn't have to worry about the fans going after him. <laughs> I've heard some horror stories about his traveling from guys like Pat Patterson or uh, Bobby yeah. Heenan. You know, they tell him from time to time, you know, every now and then that gets put on DVD sets or. Uh, releases or whatnot, and it's just, you know, you can't help but feel bad for the guy who, you know, had to get a special car, had to buy two airplane seats, yeah. could not possibly have fit into one of those airplane or airplane restrooms, had an emergency taken place. I mean... Spent several life savings on alcohol. Oh, uh, yeah, also true. <laughs> he was a world champion. Well, you know, when you're that big, it takes more to take effect. He had. I mean, yeah, if he wanted to get drunk, he had to. He physically had to ingest more than you know someone like you or I would. Right. Yeah. I mean, more than us combined, probably. Well, me especially because I don't drink. But <laughs> hypothetically. Okay. Hypothetically speaking, of course. But in any oh, yeah. event, uh, yeah, definitely Andre, one of the uh, one of the legends of wrestling, and 
his heel run was uh, definitely something that extended uh, Hulk Hogan's run on top, too. Uh, that's probably the point where Hogan needs something a little, a little fresh to uh, keep him going. Yeah, I mean, well, he had, what, the steel cage match with King Kong Bundy the year before? Yeah. And they'd, trans- I mean, the big feud early days during the boom was Hogan and Piper. And right. you had a great, I mean, you had a perfect protagonist-antagonist pairing there. But they had transitioned away from that. Piper got into his thing with Mr. T, and then, uh, you know, Piper just kind of got Doing into movies a, some, some good movies. He's a part-timer. And he just, it's all good. Yeah, yeah, part-timer. Nowadays, he'd be world champ. Yeah. I, ironically enough, I don't care about that one iota. But, you know, I mean, he'd gone from Piper and a really hot angle to King Kong Bundy, and that was that was okay. I mean, it was him and Bundy. Decent enough still. Yeah, but Bundy was fine. But he was fine that role. He was, he was believable. He was the walking condominium. He was uh, yeah. God, like six five and four hundred forty pounds. He was he was wider than most door frames out there. Just an yeah. insanely insanely wide person. Not like he wasn't like fat. He was wide. So his body still type is, is incidentally. He still is obviously. Yeah, <laughs> he's still alive there. Thank God. But yeah, he was. He, yeah, he had a still out there. He, he still making type. money. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Quite the right here. I want to talk a little bit uh, about Randy Savage. Yeah. Because there's a guy who debuted, and, I mean, he, he debuted with the angle of I'm looking for the perfect manager type of scenario. Right. I mean, it would be, it's been recycled a couple of times in contemporary wrestling, but... They had so many managers there, by the way. Oh, so I just remember many. From watching this, I remember from watching those videos that there's, there's like, there'd be like teen managers there vying for his services and say... I mean, yeah, nowadays you couldn't run that angle. I mean, they no. they tried it with, what, Bobby Roode a few years back in uh, Impact Wrestling, and they brought in, like, four ex-WWF guys. Yeah, there the wasn't thing is any Bobby in... Eden and Colonel Parker, who hadn't done anything in years, and uh, Tracy Brooks, the Brooks wound up getting it. Uh, why would you turn down Bobby Heenan? <laughs> I, I, well... I don't get it, but... Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, Tracy Brooks is a good friend of mine, so I can understand where Bobby's coming from there. <laughs> All right. But it was... So he debuts with that gimmick, and he winds up going not with any of the 15 established guys. He goes with Elizabeth, uh, one of the most fair, famous pairings in wrestling. But what was it about Savage that made you want to hate him? Just his, uh, I mean, just his bombastic attitude about, you know, him being better than everybody, pretty much. He was just uh, loud, loud, outspoken, a loudmouth. Um, I mean, it was tough for me because I always kind of liked the guy, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, as far back as as I was watching, I always kind of liked the guy. But he was a, he was a jerk to Elizabeth. 
that was one of the main things that he would harp on Contra. He was a complete uh, jerk to Elizabeth usually in promos and, uh, you know, just basically, uh, you know, down-talking the woman and whatnot. I think that was Elizabeth's main purpose was to have Randy Savage give him somebody to abuse, I think, was pretty much what her main purpose was, and to make people feel sorry for her and to make them root for people like George the Animal. Uh, who doesn't love George the Animal Steel, the poor goofball? Yeah, he's a local, local guy, old George. He was a yeah. bad heel back in the day, too. So, but here's my thing. Savage, uh, you know, again, you know, kind of, you know, mistreats Elizabeth. Everyone loves Miss Elizabeth. So, you know, further boo to Randy Savage. He you know, gets the face turn uh WrestleMania 4. I thought that his stuff as, I mean, for as good as all of his, you know, I'm superior, I am the macho man stuff was, when he got to be crazy, paranoid WWF champion Randy Orton, that was just a different facet and a, in some ways a much more intriguing one than him just kind of lording being the Intercontinental Champion around and potentially crushing Ricky Steamboat's throat. Yeah, yeah, people didn't really like him crushing Steamboat's throat, but at the same time, he did get some cheers of wrestling history. Some people did like him. They, they didn't really mind that too much. But, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely once he became champion, he, of course he was best friends with Hulk Hogan. They were the mega powers, but I don't know. Hogan's still kind of hanging around. People seem to like Hogan more. Hogan seems to have those eyes towards Miss Elizabeth. What, what, what the, I can't remember the phrase. There was like those, a lot of those eyes. Do you remember this at all? Or, oh, yeah. Know. He had eyes for Miss Elizabeth. There's something it wasn't like less, and, what uh, was it? it? It wasn't wandering. It was, uh, oh, God. Yeah, it was such a great phrase, too. Yeah, it wasn't wandering. Wandering is wandering is something else completely different. Yeah, but, uh, I know. I, oh, God. I don't know. Maybe it'll yeah, come to me. It's a great phrase, though, and uh, I don't know. I mean, you could kind of, if you were a Hogan hater, like a lot of people were, you could you could justify Savage uh, being uh, paranoid about Hogan wanting his title and wanting his woman and stuff like that. He wasn't completely. Uh, I don't think he's completely wrong to be uh, a little nervous about Hogan because. Hogan was always that top guy, and you kind of got to figure the top guy always wants the top prize. That being the WWF title. I don't know about the whole Miss Elizabeth thing, although there were some instances where Hogan would lift Elizabeth up in the shoulders, you know. So you can kind of justify that. Well, that's that's one of the best things about it. I mean, there are two kinds, and I've mentioned this before on this show. There are two kinds of really great bad guys, and they all kind of break down into one of these two categories. The good ones. They're either just pure evil and love being evil, like Mr. Yeah. Burns, who just revels in his own crapulence, or Bobby they believe Gears. they are completely justified and are actually in the right. Yeah, and Randy Savage was definitely in that player category, where he thought he was in the right, and even though people didn't agree with him, he still continued doing his thing. And of course, he'd move on to uh, have sensational Sherry by his side, and he'd become the macho king, Randy Savage. His feud with Warrior was one of the most... It's one of the oddest pairings because you put them together on paper and you it might not necessarily work, but whatever it was, they had this crazy kind of wonderful chemistry. Yeah, they're they're both insane. Which helps. <laughs> they both had that going for them. I mean, they're, I mean, Warrior was insane and Savage, he had some insane premise going back in his day. No doubt about that. And uh, as far as the in-ring stuff goes, Warrior, although I don't think everybody... You won't confuse the guy with Bret Hart, but you could carry him. You could take him to a good match. 
And Randy Savage was kind of a worker back in the day where he liked to plan out his matches. And that's kind of the guys like Flair and Steamboat don't really agree with that because they think everything should be done in the ring. But Savage was a guy, he'd like to, he liked to think stuff out beforehand. He liked to plan everything out, so everything would be, would be perfect going in. He had the battle plan ready to go. And Warrior was the kind of guy who, when you give him something like that, like he had with Hogan WrestleMania 6 where they did the same thing, you give him a good script for a good match, and he can do it. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it, it's been mentioned that the more you hate the guy, the more powerful it is when he finally turns and you get reconciliation. And Savage reuniting with Elizabeth after he loses yeah. to the Warrior. One of the, still one after of the greatest he Elizabeth ever. for years. After he, after he mistreated Elizabeth for all these years, but Elizabeth still tried to stick by him all these years. Even if we thought Savage didn't love her or whatever, she still stuck with him until it just got to the point where she couldn't take any more. And finally, after Sherry turns against Savage, she runs down and gets her out of the ring. And, yeah, definitely one of the classic uh, WrestleMania, one of those WrestleMania moments that they always talk about. To me, the, to me that match and the aftermath, it, to me it's one of my top five. I'd put it in my top five all time, quite frankly. That might be a, that might be a, a contentious statement for some people, but it's on my list due to the, uh, due to the, the match itself and to the story. Yeah, every, I think we're all suckers for redemption stories, uh, you know, one way or another. All right. Yeah. What else do I have on my list here? Oh, let's see. I mean, this is an odd one in that, and this might be one of the first instances of what we kind of associate now with being the cool heel to a degree. But sure. I want to talk about Jake Roberts. Oh, the because stage. yeah. Well, and I heard, I forget which interview it was with him, uh, I, I couldn't tell you which one, but I heard one with him where he said that his only regret was that as a heel, he never took a backward step. He didn't play up being, you know, he, he would cheat and he would be, you know, the, I mean, he would do some of the heel stuff, but he never begged off. He never did, you know, I'm going to take a powder type things. And he mentions that the problem was eventually people, you know, you can be a jackass about it, but eventually the people are going to start to respect it. And that's, and that's kind of what facilitates people starting to cheer for you and all of that stuff. And that was, I mean, that, he might be one of the first kind of iterations. And again, we mentioned it being, you know, the cool heel, which debatably just doesn't, uh, I mean, thank you, Kevin Nash, for part of that. But, I mean, Jake was such an anomaly in a lot of ways in that, he, I mean, if you look at a lot of the things that we associate with professional wrestling in the 80s, Jake was not that. Right, right. I would say the thing about Jake, from the time he started off as a heel in the DF, then he went face for a while, then he went heel again. I would say the thing about Jake Roberts for, you know, the most, most of the time is he never really changed. Like, his, oh, yeah. his style, his style, his demeanor... Uh, his uh, you know, his strategy towards life that never really changed. What changed was the people he's going after. Like eventually he's going after the guys that we didn't. He started off going up against like Ricky Steamboat, guys that we liked, and then eventually started going against guys like Rick Rude and Ted DiBiase, guys that we didn't like. He was justifying an instance where Rick Rude tried to hit on his wife, and uh, <laughs> Dick didn't really take too kindly to that. That wound up being a bad situation for Rick, but. Uh, you know, May, there was also a time he got blinded by Rick Martell with the arrogance. You know, oh. they gave him issues to work with. <laughs> Let's and have a blindfold, he, Matt. Blindfold. Come on. Yeah, yeah. The less said about that particular instance, the better. But uh, here's what he, kills he, me he, about he, that: nobody learned. 
We still got yeah. them years later. <laughs> like, no. Yeah. They even had Jake shoot up Andre the Giant for a little time there. And, uh, Andre Jake was, was afraid of snakes. Special. Yeah, he had the fear of snakes going on. But uh, uh, Jake, but eventually after that long face run where he faced all the bad guys down and whatnot, we eventually remembered that at the end of the day, Jake Roberts is, was, always will be a snake. And that's what happened when he uh, when he turned on the Ultimate Warrior, when he uh, when he helped the Undertaker out and left in that filled room, and that's what happened when he had the snake bite Randy Savage. And then we remembered that uh, you know Jake, he was always a snake. We never should trust the guy. That's really the best yeah. kind of heel too. Oh yeah. Well, what was his line? No, that's the reptile's just a toy that I bring around to scare people. I'm the real snake. Yep. And the fact that we bought into it <laughs> frequently. For years, how he was a face for years, and yeah, like I said, face, though, he, he never really, he never changed. No, he was just Jake the Snake, and well, when he's opposite, you know, like Rick Rude or Ted DiBiase, we we cheer for him because we don't like who he's. But no, he he had his he you know had his character, he had his psychology down, and yeah. you know the only especially, thing. He, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, especially in '91, that was that's one of the most. One of the most despicable heel runs, really, that Jake had during that time period, where not only did he have the snake fight Randy Savage, he also slapped the list, for God's sake. Oh. Which, uh, was something that, that did not, you did not have uh, women getting beat on by men in the, in the 1980s and 19, early 1990s. That did not happen. This wasn't East of you where every woman was getting beat up every week. That was something that definitely stood out. And it made it, made it pretty much impossible for even, I mean, I was a big Jake fan when I was a kid. I love Jake Roberts, but even I was taken aback when he slapped Elizabeth. It's like, oh my goodness, what are you doing? Come on, we understand you're not liking Randy Savage, but what do you got against Elizabeth? Yeah, seriously, she didn't do anything. And then Crazy. he had it. And he had, you know, the <laughs> had the cobra bite Randy. Yeah. Oh, now that I heard a rumor. Oh. I don't know if you heard. Is it true that okay they had the? I mean, the snake was devenomized naturally, sure. uh, but I heard the rumor that. Snake bites Randy, you know, takes, you know, Jake gets the snake off. I heard a rumor that, okay, that actually the snake died a few weeks later. You know what, I, went, I, I did not hear that, but I would not at all be surprised. I would not <laughs> I be surprised kinda... that this, I would not be surprised that the snake would not survive an encounter with Randy Savage. Like, it bites Randy Savage, and then just from all the crap going through his blood. Yeah, who knows what's going through Savage's veins. Yeah, a few, you know, a week or so later, the snake that bit him winds up doing it up. Well, you know, <laughs> bite Randy's well, that, you know, bite most of well, the Well, the famous snake dying instance was the time where uh, Earthquake sat on the... Oh, that was... <laughs> sat on... You know, that, that was kind of... Yeah. That was an interesting was way to get some sympathy for... Yeah, yeah, and then, he, of course, he brought in an even bigger snake, because that's just what Jake did. Brought in Lucifer. Lucifer. Yeah, the albino reticulated yeah. python. Which only backfired on everybody, really. <laughs> just giving the guy a bigger snake. I mean, what do you think? Why are you killing off Jake's snake? You know he's just going to get a bigger one, just be even more of an annoyance. Not very smart. Yeah, um, there was something else about him that I wanted to I'm trying to remember what it was. There was some other. In, oh, when he uh, he debuted, uh, feud, essentially debuted into the feud with Ricky Steamboat, didn't he? Or was that Steamboat's re debut? I can't remember for the life of me the chronology of it. It was. Uh, it was. Pretty, it was like Jake's first big thing, and uh, Steamboat had been around for a bit after that. He, he before that he too with like Don Morocco, I think. Yeah, he too with Morocco before that. That was yeah. Steamboat was okay. Jake's first uh, feud. 
Because him landing that DDT on the concrete... Oh, oh that's painful. Oh, golly. That is, that is, I mean, if you're going to... like a nowadays, ball in the floor. God, it, it sounded awful. Yeah. I mean, it, to anyone out there, you can look up this clip and listen to the sound when Ricky's head smacks the concrete. It's... Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean... Oh. <laughs> and Jake told him before he did it. Yeah, I mean, he, he told him, it's like, okay, uh... Yeah, you shouldn't be doing this on the floor. It's a bad idea. You know, <laughs> he told us that they didn't listen. They're like, "No, nah, right on the floor, be fine." Well, I mean, nowadays you can do it safely. There's a couple of ways, in my understanding, and I'm not a trained wrestler by any stretch of the. But my understanding, from what I've observed, is you can do it safely in two ways. One of which is you get your hand underneath your head, lessen the impact, and the other is instead of taking the instead of taking it flat. Uh, a face bump, you do a somersault. Yeah, uh, I, I, I could see where you could you try to well, do a somersault. Well, that's what they do nowadays if you're doing that on the floor, right? Well, I mean, nowadays we have pads. And what, yeah, nowadays they, everybody does a DDT on the floor and everybody kicks out too. Yeah, well, what are you going to do? Does that mean anything? That's another, that's another rant though, for another day. Uh, a little bit, days. and I don't disagree with you <laughs> as far as that goes, but I mean, uh, still, ow. And yeah, that was that was brutal. That was, uh, and the fact that he got to—I I mean, credit to Jake for just being as completely remorseless on screen as you possibly could be. <laughs> well, I think uh, I don't think that was a work. <laughs> I warned you. Yeah, he, he told him he tries to it. tries to pick up Steamboat. That's the biggest amount of dead weight he's ever lifted in his life. That's for sure. But, Lifting uh, dead weight is not easy. No, you had Steamboat bring out the Commander Dragon later on to feed with the snake. It was just an alligator. It was just an alligator, but as far as the, WF was a big time for uh, for uh, animals and reptiles and things of that nature in that era. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You don't see that a lot now. No. I think, no, I think ever since, I think ever since uh, Pepper got eaten by Big Boss Man, it's just kind of... Uh, kind of dissuaded the, the end of it. Coming out. Yeah, it kind of dissuaded oh. them. Tori Wilson had a dog for a little bit. She did. She had her dog with her for a while. Uh, I think there's a guy in Chikara who has like a stuffed um, parakeet that he keeps with him. Pigeon. It's a feral. It's a. It's a feral pigeon. Well, sometimes in Chikara you'll see drag. You'll see uh, like animals wrestling in Chikara. Doesn't love dragon dragon. Dragon show up on occasion. Dragon dragon. I've not seen him around in a while. CP Monk and Colt Bunny. Good time. <laughs> I love that promotion so much. It's not. It's not rational, but I get such a kick out of some of their stuff. It's a. It's a good time. Good time. Which uh, at the end of the day, wrestling should be a good time. Yeah. All right, um, the last guy, well, not the last guy, but I want to talk briefly on uh, the two men who kind of flanked Roddy Piper throughout those early boom years in the forms of Paul Hor- Paul Orndorff and Cowboy Bob Orton. Yeah. Orndorff was kind of the primary antagonist towards Hogan in the sense that I think it was it was Orndorff who got a couple of title shots. Uh, he was the one who had the, uh, the famous cage match that nearly ended in a draw was Orndorff, if memory serves. That's right. So, uh, was he just... So, 
was his whole thing just was he just another you know uh, I you know I built like a Greek god which he was let's be fair but was that kind of his thing was I just look better than you and I'm superior did he have something else kind of going on there well I mean when he started off he was Mr. Wonderful and that was that was pretty much his thing he was a uh, he was a cocky son of a gun he had that million dollar body he had actually when they first started off they had I remember Orndorff's debut match in Madison Square Garden was also Piper's debut, and Piper debuted as Orndorff's manager. Because I think Piper was, I think Piper is still injured from the Starcade dog, dog collar match, so they put him in Orndorff's corner. Kind of got a link together. And, uh, yeah, Orndorff was a, a cocky son of a gun. Mr. Wonderful, he called himself. Uh, looked better than everybody. And uh, him and Hogan had some history going back. They were both from the uh, Tampa area. So you can imagine that they had uh, some history and um, some uh, tough chemistry, I guess you could say. They worked pretty hard against each other. Uh, they were both trying to show that they were the better guy, which makes for interesting matches, definitely, in wrestling. And uh, Hogan Ordorff always had that going. And of course, uh, at WrestleMania ones when uh, they do the turn on Ordorff after he loses the uh, after he loses the tag team match. But uh, uh, Ordorff's bigger heel run was later on when. Uh, after he and Hulk Hogan became best friends and whatnot, eventually Hogan kind of uh, got big head. He stopped returning Ordorff's calls. Ordorff would try to call Hogan and try to hook up for, like, an exercise or whatever, and Hogan just didn't have time for it. And uh, that eventually made Ordorff uh, uh, crazy and whatnot, and he decided that he's going to turn against Hulk Hogan. And Ordorff was the first guy to turn against Hulk Hogan, and that led to big box office uh, pretty much all over the country. Yeah, well, I imagine what I mean. Turning on Hogan, turning on Hogan wasn't the same as turning on Sting, which well, everybody did that. Yeah, I mean, come on. I I mentioned this. I mean, Sting must be one of his character must be one of the dumbest guys in history. I mean, how many times did just Ric Flair turn? Let's ignore everyone else. Let's just count Ric Flair here. Yeah, uh, Ric Flair uh, turned on Sting at least once a year, it seemed, uh, for quite a while there. And it eventually got to the point where it was even comedic, because I remember the la- one of the last times it did, in like 95 or so, Sting even said like he knew Flair would turn against him, and uh, you know, eventually Flair did turn, and Sting wound up getting some revenge, so... I don't know if that makes it better or worse, to be honest with you. But, uh, I don't know. No, a lot of people... No, what, usually once you were on Hogan's good side in the 80s, you kind of stayed there. Like, you know, he'd, he'd like, hang out like the junkyard dog and people like that. And they'd, Jimmy Snuka. He'd, like, tag team occasionally. Jimmy Snuka. And they'd all be friends and whatnot. They all, they all knew their role. They knew Hogan was the guy driving the bus, and they'd, they'd hang out and get the money. It was a, it was a smart thing to do, but uh, Orndorff, he just uh, got jealous, man. He got, he got jealous of Hogan. He got uh, mad that Hogan wouldn't hang out with him. They wouldn't go work out, whatever. And uh, it's another one of those cases where you could kind of uh, you kind of justify Orndorff's uh, stance because, you know, Hogan tells him they're like best friends and all that, and yet uh, he doesn't seem to want to hang around the guy. And I'm sure a lot of us could probably identify with that. We've all had people that told us we we're friends, and then they wouldn't hang out with us, which I have. Yeah. No, no, yeah, I, I think that's a universal thing. We've all been there. Yeah, so, and so, yeah, so uh, I think about you can even, say that, you can even say that Hogan was in the wrong, but it's still, you know, Hulk Hogan. Yeah, so. He's still, it's still Hogan. It's still that time frame. He's still everyone's favorite. Yeah. But I'm just curious about this. Cowboy Bob, was he, I mean, okay, I'm going to phrase this. I don't get any of the Ortons. I don't understand why, 
I don't get the appeal. And okay. Specifically, that reference is Randy, who I have seen, and I just, anytime he's on television, I feel I could go do anything else, and I would be slightly more entertained. Rare exceptions, but generally speaking. And now, that's me. Plenty of people like him, like his work. Okay, I'm not saying yeah. everyone should hate him. What was it about Cowboy Bob that, was it just his association with Piper that got him, you know, to be, that got him all that heat, or was it, I mean, he had the, you know, the broken arm for a long, I mean, some of it was legitimate, but he, I mean, yeah, I mean, the cast, I mean, did him just wearing that cast all the time contribute, They're like, no, no, my arm's that, broken. That definitely helps, man. People don't like it when you, when they think you're faking an injury, and you have to feel bad for Pop, though, because, yeah. It's tough to say what kind of career Bob Orton could have had if he didn't have that chronic arm injury. To figure that if he didn't have that injury, that he never got healed up, he probably would have won a couple more times. I, I'm just kidding. I'm just saying that's quite possible. But uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of the courts had to do with, a lot of it had to do with Piper. But uh, Orton was also doing like the kind of heel lackey thing before he got there. If you go back to '83 with uh, Flair and Race and uh, NWA. Uh, it was Slater and the, it was uh, Bob Orton and his, his uh, Dick Slater that were racist flunkies that tried to break Ric Flair's neck and put him out of wrestling. So the heel flunky was pretty much what Bob Orton Jr. was born to do. And uh, him and Piper had that, uh, they had a great chemistry together. Uh, you know, they were like uh, best friends forever pretty much. And uh, it's always uh, pretty amusing. And Bob had that arm injury that uh, never quite healed properly. And uh, <laughs> while he was a good in-ring guy, he didn't really, like, stand out, you know? Like, you knew he was good, but he wasn't, like, a top-flight kind of guy that just kind of set the world on fire. But he did a great job of making people who who were in the ring with him uh, better than they usually were. And, you know, that's a lost art as far as yeah. in general. This is a minor tangent. But there's a difference between being able to have a good match and being able to make your opponent look good. Uh, now, mm-hmm. not always. There, there's some overlap in skill sets, but the loss of talent who exists almost solely to get in the ring with someone, contemporarily speaking, like, say, Rusev, or you know, someone else like that, or, you know, or Babyface, for that matter. You know, Someone for Roman Reigns to go out there and beat, and beat decisively, but look really good while doing it. And you yeah. don't have that nowadays. You have, I mean, you have guys that you can throw out there to take a loss, but the mindset is not, okay, what can I do necessarily to make this guy look as good as possible? Which is what a lot of those other right. guys, guys like Bob Orton, or you know, Iron Mike Sharp, Barry Horowitz type of scenario, they, their mentality was, I want to make my opponent look good. Not, and it just seems like that's a mindset that's missing from a lot of contemporary wrestling. Yeah, it really is. And I think the problem that plays, I think the problem with that is that while guys might look back to guys like Bob Orton, guys like Mike Sharp and people like that, they don't want to necessarily get caught up in that role. They don't want to be the guy that makes the other guy look good. They want to be the guy that gets to look good. I mean, yeah. a, guy like, uh, a guy like Dolph Ziggler would be perfect. And the perfect is the guy that makes the other guy look like a million bucks. But the Him problem with that Ryder. is that... As just, yeah. as just the duo that makes everyone else look good. Yeah, 
And, the, and another, but I think another problem with that is in the fans' eyes, because the fans will go if if, if Dolph Ziggler and Ryder to a lesser extent, if they do that all the time, and then the fans get mad. Like, why aren't you having Zack Ryder do more? Why aren't you having Dolph Ziggler do more? So it's kind of one of those things where the fans, in a way, are kind of cheating themselves out of that. I uh, and and, it, I, and, I, I think, and I also think there's, and there's a mentality that guys don't want to uh, guys want to be on top. Yeah, I I think you're right. It's uh, it, it you know the fan reaction has to be taken into consideration. All right, um, anyway, a couple of other guys I really wanted to talk about. Let me look at my list here. Oh, um, this loosely fits into this time frame, and I'll, I'll stress loosely here because I I want to move a little bit. I, I basically want to touch like boom into kind of immediately before and then into the attitude era type stuff. So. When yeah, I mentioned The Undertaker, as far as a, yeah. a character goes in the World Wrestling Federation, he fits. A, I, I'm not stepping out of my, chronolo- my self-imposed chronological restrictions here. The Undertaker was a really good character, a really good monster heel. I mean, he, what, his first year? I think on like the, his first year anniversary of being in the promotion, he beat Hulk Hogan for the title. Yeah, that was big time. And, I mean, kids were crying. People, I mean, the audience is completely invested in that as far as Hogan can't knock The Undertaker over and, oh, Ric Flair came down with oh, that dirty... No, and yeah. but him as a character I mean, and his presentation, he was great as a heel. I mean, people were legitimately kind of, you know, unnerved by him. He was a scary dude. That was a, he was just a scary-looking dude. Uh, nothing hurt him. He felt no pain. He didn't. He didn't sell anything, you know. He, uh, you know, uh, and we, sometimes we knock guys for not selling stuff, but in a certain context, when that's your character and you portray it so well, it works. The Undertaker shouldn't have been selling stuff back in that day. He was a zombie. Uh, just anybody you put in his path, there he's going to tear him down. He's going to knock him down. He's not going to say a whole lot other than rest him. He's got that. He's got that creepy Paul Bear by his side, and Paul Bear is going to speak in that creepy voice that. I don't have a good Paul Bear impression, um, unfortunately. I wish I did. Because that, that guy had a great voice. Great oh, voice it was high-pitched and warbly. Yeah, yeah it was just a, and perfect, the perfect managing character for The Undertaker. One of the best uh, wrestler-manager pairings of all time, in my humble opinion, and probably missed as well. But, uh, yeah, definitely uh, that first year, that first uh, Undertaker heel run, he comes in as uh, Million Dollar Man and Mystery Partner Survivor Series, he just uh, he tombstones people. He gets counted out by he gets counted out because he starts kicking too much ass outside. This Which is the best way to lose. You have the to best lose. way to lose. The old disqualification by kicking too much ass. It's a good time, but uh, for that year, I mean, he just ran through anybody they put in front of him. It didn't matter who it was. Never felt any pain. They put him up against the Hulkster. You think, well, the Hulkster will do something against him, and the Hulkster did more than most. Undertaker still got that win. He got the uh, he lost it to Tuesday in Texas, and then there's some other stuff after that. So it led to a face turn, but uh, definitely Undertaker heel that first year. That is, you know, if you're looking, if you're like a uh, if you're like a wrestling booker or promoter or whatever, you're looking for a way to uh, put somebody over strong. Just watch what they did with the Undertaker for that first year. That, that's probably the best way you could learn how to do it. Ah, uh, yeah, and. I mean, he again. He had body bag matches too, didn't he? I mean, before we got. I mean, nowadays you have the casket matches and all that other stuff. And I, I imagine it was just too much of a logistical problem 
to do that on a regular basis, but body bags are yeah. relatively easy to come by. And to be perfectly frank, I think a body bag would scare me more than a coffin, the idea of being sealed in one. Yeah, he put the, he put the jobbers in body bags during his matches, and as a kid, that definitely freaked me the hell out. Like, put the guy, put the guy in a bag. What the hell? <laughs> a really thick bag that has, I mean, you can't breathe in there. It's going to get hot. Yeah, not, not a good time. And of course, yeah, and the, of course, the legendary segment where uh, they locked the warrior in the casket. Uh, that thing legitimately creeped me out, too. That, that one gave me nightmares. I'm not going to lie. That was scary stuff when I was uh, seven years old. Ah, to have those eyes again. To be a child and just enjoy. <laughs> Indeed. Not overanalyze stuff. Yeah, but Undertaker was a... And uh, he, he's been scary for most of his career. I mean... I mean uh, he he, even he when he's scary. doing Biker Taker, you know, he's still scary. <laughs> I like, you know what, though? I, I like Biker Taker, though. I, 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 I thought that was... I, thought, I think that was underrated. I think it was an underrated portion of his career where he... Especially when he, when he was big evil. Red Devil, the Undertaker, and uh, he, he just—he was a—he was a bad dude, man. And he wasn't—he wasn't the typical Undertaker stuff. He did a bit more talking. He was like that uh, loudmouth, big-ass redneck that can beat the crap out of you. And he played that to a freaking. And then, oh yeah, and he—he uh, he did so many awful things to the Hardys. <laughs> he did awful things to everybody. Didn't he make like Tommy Dreamer eat his vomit or something? Ah, uh, something like that. It might have been urine. He made Tommy Dreamer eat something. It's probably, he, he something awful. Something that, of course, that was when Dreamer was doing the I'll do disgusting things gimmick. Yeah, which was an awful gimmick, too. That's, That's the best thing you can do with guy. Tommy Dreamer? Really? Come on. <laughs> Tommy Dreamer's not one of those guys who just used to have him put people over. He's one of those guys makes people look like a million bucks. You didn't have to have him bop into uh, stuff. No, no, you uh, didn't. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, this completely in a different time and I will get into it more at a later date I believe but when he was doing the biker thing I mean both both times when he was a heel when he was a face I mean his face stuff on Smackdown um, after the draft uh, he got traded he turned face and his first thing I think over there was he feuded with Brock Lesnar after Lesnar had taken the title off of the Rock and he and Lesnar had some great matches I mean it's uh, you know it's more than your typical big man fair but you know, those two had some really nice chemistry. Yeah, I mean, I was a big fan of the Unforgiven match due to the ending, which was, uh, the ending wasn't good. They had the disqualification and Undertaker threw Lesnar through some sign or something. I'm a big fan of that, but hell of a sell, though. I think I was no mercy. There was that. That, yeah. was a, that was a badass match. One of my favorite cell matches. I mean, that might be number yeah, one three of the better cell the famous, too. Yeah, definitely one of the better cell matches. Uh, lots of uh, goofy stuff going on. You had uh yeah, hell, Paul Heyman got busted open during that match. Yeah, yeah I think... He was to the cage. Yeah, match. through one of the camera holes. He reached through and grabbed him and then yanked him into the fence. Yeah, good times. Yeah, Undertaker was. Undertaker bled like freaking sieves. Ble- oh, yeah, the whole match he was bleeding. Uh, missed his e- I don't know if he went too deep or he nicked something. I mean, it wasn't an artery, but he was leaking the whole time. Yeah, that was, that was, one, that was one of the worst ones. Uh, but, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely good stuff. Undertaker... Undertaker in general. Good guy. Oh, yeah. All right. Let's see. I think that's everyone I had on my list that I really that I remembered and really wanted to talk about. Anyone uh, jump out at you that we've omitted from, you know, the early, from the 80s days of the World Wrestling Federation? Well, um, I might, uh, I don't think we discussed a whole, whole lot of tag teams. I don't think we no. discussed oh, a whole lot I, of tag teams. Yeah, the hard tag teams. I, I would say the Heart Foundation, uh, for one. Uh, definitely oh, Bret Hart yeah. and Nyhart. 
the Hart Foundation, along with Jimmy Hart, the mouth of the South. Um, Brett, we all know about Brett's uh, faults on the microphone. He'll never be, like, the greatest talker of all time or whatever. And definitely early on in his career, he wasn't really sure of himself. But uh, he stuck with Neidhart, who was uh, – Neidhart was certainly a promo in his own right. And uh, hey. Jimmy Hart, of course, could talk. Neidhart was the typical 80s pro wrestler, talk loud, work fast kind of bl- – and it worked. I mean, don't get me wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was but the 80s, it got the message across, though. And uh, Brett, uh, he kinda, he definitely grew into his own as part of that tag team where he, uh, Neidhart was able to do, like, the talking and whatnot, but Brett could do a lot of the work, and Neidhart could fill in uh, with the power stuff. Uh, uh, Brett and Jim were a great combination, I think, of uh, the scientific ability and the powerhouse, which, uh, you know, it's perfect combination for guys to form a brilliant tag team, which they were for many years. Still holds true. You could still use that same kind of methodology in pairing guys up, and it works. Yeah. It works very well. Yeah, as far as their heel, as far as like being heels and whatnot go, I mean, pretty much anybody with Jimmy Hart is going to get booed, so that's pretty much a given. And they were facing like guys like the British Bulldogs, who were you know pretty popular in their own rights. And uh, the Hart's and Bulldogs, man, talk, talk about you know, class Oof. matches up and down the bike. Those were those were some really good stuff. Uh, I still have fond memories of those. Um, and I'm trying to think of, there was a tag team that I had in mind that you mentioned that because um, the other one, talked, that, the other one that pops up to me is Demolition. Uh, that's it. Okay. Now, you know, let me say this: for a tag team that started off as kind of a Road Warriors knockoff, they wound up crafting their own personas and became a a pretty solid entity in their own right. They were. Um, yeah, I mean, that they were kind of crafted, X and Smash, and that's definitely the only one. Every territory pretty much had their own Road Warrior knockoffs. That's true. There were those, like the Powers of Pain started off in a similar fashion, and, uh, you know, a lot of other ones we don't remember because they weren't very good. But, uh, Blade yeah, Runners. Yeah, I mean, that's how... It, yeah, the, the Blade Runners, indeed. But uh, that's how X and Smash started off. And uh, I mean, But they were legit, though. Bill Eadie, back in the day, as a mass superstar. He was a pretty darn good heel as a mass superstar and as Zach. He could cut a great promo. And uh, Smash, Gary Darso, he was part of that Minnesota bodybuilding clique with Hawk and Animal and Rick Rude and those guys. And uh, they're just uh, two powerhouse guys who just, uh, they would just clubber people, as Husky Rhodes would say. And it wasn't always the prettiest thing of all time. They had the cool-looking paints. They had those... Uh, the kind of the S and M looking attire, which is kind of strange going back, but uh, definitely an effective. Well, in the in the eighties, it was associated more with like biker cult, biker and par- and punk culture in the eighties than it was with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of. Yeah, when you look back now, it looks kind of weird, but uh, I'm sure back in the day it was fine. But they look cool. Don't get me wrong, but uh, they were definitely uh, definitely effective in their role. Uh, they were the longest reigning tag team champions until the previously mentioned London and Kendrick knocked them off because they got about them. <laughs> but, uh, just so bizarre. Yeah, it was, it was bizarre. Now, um, I can think of a couple other guys, but I'm not sure if you want to hold off on them for the Heenan show or not because I had a couple of guys that are really, you know, uh, along with Heenan for a lot were I, I thought of Mr. Perfect. I think of uh, Ravishing Rick Root. Uh, let's talk about Root. I do want to. I do want to get into Perfect more with Heenan because of how kind of inseparable they were as a duo. But Root sure, was. Yes. Uh, he had. He did plenty of stuff. You know, kind of independent of Heenan. 
I mean, again, there's a few guys who are just so inexorably, I can speak, (laughs) linked to Heenan. The thing about the the Rune-Heenan relationship is kind of different from the rest of Heenan's relationships, and uh, Bobby's talked about this before. Rune didn't really want a manager. He he thought that Heenan was there to basically take the heat off him. And uh, we're not sure if Rick ever quite figured out that uh, Heenan was there to get the heat on Rick, but uh, basically Rude wanted all the heat to be on himself. He didn't feel like he needed a manager. And, well, I mean, you can kind of, he was a good promo. It's not like you needed Bobby to talk for him or nothing, but uh, it's not like they weren't friends or nothing. It's just kind of a different dynamic than uh, you know some of his other wrestler-manager relationships. Well, that kind of strikes me. The, the nature of their on-screen pairing was more... Uh, kind of like uh, from a contemporary standpoint, when you paired up CM Punk and Paul Heyman, yeah. uh, I, yeah. Punk didn't need a mouthpiece, which is traditionally one of the things a manager is. You have a guy who can't talk, like Brock Lesnar, for ex- another contemporary example. You pair him with someone that can, and that was a, a staple of you know early professional wrestling. You had a guy who couldn't cut a promo. All right, that's why we've got you know Captain Lou Albano, Freddie Blassie, Gary Hart, Bobby. That's why these guys are on staff. So you can have someone sure. who doesn't talk have a mouthpiece. Rude didn't. You know, Rude was a good promo. He had good presentation on his own. But from a fan standpoint, you take all of the greatness of Rick Rude that made you hate him, and then just as kind of the final screw you, Bobby the Brain Heenan is managing this guy. That's right. He's, he's part of the Heenan family, so you can't like him. You just. I mean, you just can't. And that's one of those things where, you know, a good wrestler, a guy who can really go in the ring, tends to get, eventually, You, the fans start becoming so entertained, they start cheering you. There are a few things that can mitigate that. Bobby Heenan was one of them. Yeah. You could not cheer anyone with Bobby Heenan. Right. As, Ruiz, as long as Ruiz is part of the Heenan family, he didn't have to worry about accidentally being turned to a face, which uh, was definitely something that could have happened because, uh, Rude is knowing these loudmouth guys with the, you know, talk down on everybody, insult everybody, he was better looking than everybody. Uh, but at the same time, you know, he was cool. Yeah, kind of knowing he was kind of a cool heel in a way. Yeah. But uh but not but he wasn't like trying to be cool, you know what I'm saying? No, it was just his personality, you know, with his body and the way he talked and look, we all want to be ladies men. It's a it's a natural thing that men have. Years of evolution have programmed us this way, and social uh, social circumstances as well. So the fact that here's a good looking guy who can wrestle, who can get ostensibly any woman he wants. Okay, he's going to talk down to us, and we're going to be annoyed by it. But eventually, we'll start kind of living vicariously through that because that's everything we wish to cheer for and aspire to be. Yeah. And yeah. He had a cool personality, I would say. He had a cool personality, but he did not yeah. wrestle like a cool heel, you know? He would, he would no. be, he was one of the stooging heels. He'd bump his ass off for people. He would go, he would totally run away. He would do stuff like that because he didn't want to get hurt or whatever. So, he, he just had a cool not personality going for him. Certainly not. I mean, Ravis and Rick, come on. But, uh, yeah, definitely, uh, he was, and he was annoying. No one is annoying guys, but, uh, you basically program him, him with anybody. He'd be guaranteed again some kind of reaction. Yeah, and he had some good stuff. I mean, his stuff with Jake Roberts was good. He got some of the better stuff out of the Warrior. Like you mentioned, Warrior, oh, yeah. not, a, not a great worker in the traditional sense. But under the right circumstances, he could have a good match. And That's putting good. Rick Root in there happened to constitute good cir- those circumstances. Yep. 
Yeah, that's, that's for sure. But, uh, yeah, I mean, and Root is, to this day, I think Root is a guy that a lot of people think is, uh, man, possibly underrated in this day and age. You don't see, like, uh, you don't see a lot of Rick Root uh, being talked about by WWE in general, at least not until recently. Um, I mean, he might pop a little more, a little more on the network now, but kind of one of the guys that kind of feels like they've been forgotten a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I agree. All right. Um, okay, the last one I want to talk about, since we're kind of talking about tag teams to wrap this up, the breakup of Strike Force, <laughs> because you had, what, that was what, Rick Martel and Tito Santana? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, they were thrown together, kind of, and, you know, I mean, they got their whole Strike Force nickname just because we will strike with force. I mean, it's just one of those kind of... Whoa! Cool <laughs> they had the girls and cars songs, too, so uh, I wasn't a big Strike Force fan, to be honest. No, I, I mean, it's one of those things where they had good matches, but I think the breakup wound up facilitating more because it let Rick Martel turn into the you know, become the arrogant heel that he wound up being you know, so very yeah, well. And Joe Santana got to return to being the, you know, underdog baby face, that, uh, another role that he did very, very well. But you know, Rick Martel is fantastic. Oh, God. I, that's one of those guys you hate. You just hate guys like that. Oh, yeah. And Martel, I would play. I would, Including with Rick Root is another guy that I think kind of gets lost in the shuffle that doesn't quite get been remembered for being as good as he was. He was a uh, top-notch entering competitor. He never held the WWF title because, you know, again, a lot of people didn't, and he was never really in that position. He was like the mid-card heel. He was like the opening match bad guy that would come out for like the big shows, like the first match of WrestleMania to have Rick Martel coming out, and people start booing because they didn't like the model. And that's a good way to start the show. Yeah. Um, oh, brief aside, uh, the last guy I want to talk about, and I feel that I get, when we started talking about guys who kind of get uh, forgotten in the shuffle, he came to mind. Uh, but we're down to a minute of live time, so anyone listening live, uh, come back. I imagine this shouldn't, you know, the rest of this won't take more than 30 minutes, give or take. So, and I'll put links back up to the show after we're done. So, thank you for listening live, and uh, come back. We'll I'll have the rest of it put up on Facebook and Twitter and all that fun stuff. Um, but Speaking of guys who just don't you know, seem to have been forgotten despite being exceptionally talented, um, Don Morocco. Oh, yeah. I mean, I yes. yeah. I got talking with uh, Pat Mullen last week a little bit about him and just how people tend to forget that he was you know around and that he was so, so good. I mean, he made top baby faces wherever he went because people hated him. They really did. He was, uh, he was despised. He was a beach buff, man. Here's a beach bum because, I mean, yeah, the thing about Morocco, and people like like smart internet fans will say that, you know, Morocco is a little bit lazy in his matches from time to time. And, well, it plays with his character because he's a beach bum. He didn't have to try to be magnificent, you know? Just uh, could kind of coast along doing his thing. But, man, when he got in a hot feud, and when he had, like, a top base case going against him, and, you know, I'm thinking about that feud, it's, it's it falls out of the time frame a little bit, but that's okay, I think. It's Mick Foley and Tommy Dreamer and Bully Ray and everybody else talks about how they became huge fans thanks to Superfly Jimmy Snuka versus Don Morocco in a steel cage in Madison Square Garden in 1983. Yeah, what, what a wonderful clash of styles and personalities that wound up being. I mean, you had Morocco as the champion, and he was, you know, again, the beach bum and arrogant, and uh, this is God-given. And then you had, you know, Jimmy Snuka, who, in his heyday, I've heard rumors, mind you, so, uh, there's my big caveat, 
if Vince couldn't sign Hogan, he was going to go with, forward with national expansion with Jimmy Snooker in that role. That's, and, been, that's been rumored, and there's been other factors that might have laid to that not being a uh, possibility, which we probably yeah, shouldn't get into due to legal reasons. There are, yeah, I don't. I don't want to have to read a big spiel of boilerplate, of legal boilerplate. But yeah. the point being, that at the time, that wouldn't have been all that odd because Snooka was over. People loved Jimmy Superfly Snooka. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, they loved Snooka, and they wanted to see Snooka get his revenge against Morocco in that cage match. And even when Morocco did retain the title by falling outside the cage, which is a great way <laughs> great. for a deal one of the best ways for the heels to win a cage match is by falling out of the, out the door. Jimmy Snuka hit him so hard he fell out of the cage. Yeah. And it's always great when the heel uh, wins the match that way. You know what's not great, though, is when the face wins the match that way. And I saw no. that happen in Cincinnati in 1996. It was awful. It was Hunter Hearst Helmsley and Duke the Dumpster Jersey, which is bad enough that that was the cage match as it is. But <laughs> Duke Jersey yeah. wins by getting punched out of the door. That's terrible. Uh, it makes your baby face look stupid. It makes your heel look stupid. It just it, it, bad idea to anybody else. Stable don't of um, stable modern wrestling, making everybody look stupid. Yes. Hey, look, the baby face requests the cage match so he can have a fair fight with the heel. Five minutes in, he tries to escape from the cage. Of course, good, good times uh, there. But uh, but, it's a, but that's a great way for the heel to win the match is by getting knocked out of the cage and falling flat on his face. And for every reason it's bad for face, it's great for a heel. Simple logic. Yeah. Yeah, but then, of course, Snooka still gets his revenge. He drags Morocco back in the ring, goes up to the top of the cage, hits the splash, and even though how many how many different people have done the splash off the cage since then, that's still the one that everybody remembers. Oh, I, the only other one that kind of comes close in my mind, actually kind of an odd one, but on SmackDown, I forget the year. This would have been um, after WrestleMania 20. Uh, kind of towards the summer of that year, uh, there was a cage match on SmackDown between Eddie Guerrero and JBL. And Eddie hit the frog splash off the top of the cage. Okay, and that's yeah, yeah. the only thing that, that... First of all, for as much as it's been done, there's like, again, that's the only other one. Well, I remember that, and I kind of remember uh, the time Mick Foley did it to Triple H. Yeah, because that was, but, uh, that was a tribute to Snooker as well. But yeah, but Snooker's the one that everyone still to this day remembers. You remember Jimmy Snooker jumping off of that cage. Yeah. I remember Eddie did another time. I, I want to say he did another time. Remember the feud of Rey Mysterio? Was it oh, oh, it was 05? Was the feud of uh, Mysterio? The, the, uh, the summer of Rey Mysterio can always beat Eddie Guerrero. Yeah, and finally Eddie gets the big win in the cage on SmackDown, which is kind of also bad backwards because <laughs> you have the face constantly winning, and the heel finally gets the win. And most of us were happy that he finally got the win. Well, the fact that he transitioned from that to being the uh, his, if you want to, I mean, I was sad when Eddie passed, and for all kinds of reasons. If you want another one, just to kind of add, he died as he was building into a program with Batista, when Batista was on SmackDown and still actually cared about what he was doing. Yeah, and yeah. the interactions between Eddie and Batista were just... I mean, I thought they were... Go- they had a great I mean, match. It didn't matter what happened. I think it was No Mercy show where they had a great match. Oh, yeah. But yeah, he hit the frog splash. I can't remember if it was just off the turnbuckles or off of the cage. But yeah, he... Uh, he could have won. He had beat down Rey Mysterio. He was going to escape and decided, no, I want to pin him. 
Which is, I actually like that as far as heel logic goes, because that's, you know, he has to get the monkey off of his back, so he could have walked out the door, comes back, and frog flashes him. Right. But yeah, but yeah, but, uh, yeah, just to kind of, you know, get back onto track here, but uh, Morocco was just so darn good at making you hate everything about him, and Again, proper pairings. He had some really, just really good stuff. Anywhere he went, really. I mean, he had some decent runs in other territories as well. And he just had this knack for making you wish him to suffer as much as humanly possible. They did, and they also, they also even made him suffer by being in a sitcom with Mr. Fuji. <laughs> forgot about that. Fuji Vice, man. That is some classic stuff. I continue to wait for them to... Upload that onto WWE. Hey, well, to the unpaid intern listening to this show who works for WWE, you, that's your next task. Put that up on yeah, get, uh, the network. Get some Fuji Vice. Get all those Tuesday Night Titans shows. Those, those have a lot of uh, classic uh, moments. Classic for some of the right reasons and some classic for all the wrong reasons. Either way, that's all important. Yes, definitely. So they need to get on that. But uh, that's another, another thing, I guess. Mr. Fuji. How about Mr. Fuji? Golly, that guy. <laughs> um, he, he was uh, he was not exactly beloved. Um, he was constantly voted the worst manager of the year by the Wrestling Observer because, you know, Fuji was your heel manager that couldn't really speak English very well. So in that <laughs> way, he wasn't very effective. He did have the cane. He liked to strip people. He, liked, he had the bowler hat he liked to wear. Yeah. He had the suit. Fuji was not very, I mean, he, he wasn't a great talker or nothing. He was good at establishing that uh, you shouldn't like him and you shouldn't like anybody that associates with him. Yeah, well, that and his uh, his run with Yokozuna was <laughs> was interesting because, I mean, which is kind of the crazy thing, because you have Yokozuna, who you don't want to talk, partially right. because he's not Japanese, so you don't want him to yeah, speak in no way. Yeah, I know where you're going with this. And, uh, yeah, you have Mr. Fuji, who can't speak very well. So they had to break in Jim Cornette to be the spokesperson for the group. Uh, and you, a, a greater clash of all things visual you could not have than giant Yokozuna, Mr. Fuji wearing traditional Japanese clothing, and Jim Cornette yeah, looking it was, like it was quite, Stevie Wonder. Quite the crew. He, had some, uh, he had some great suits in that time period, too. And some wonderful oh, colors. Who doesn't Especially love the red and the yellow? <laughs> Yeah, the, he liked his yellow pants during that time period, that's for sure. It was an interesting time for Jim Cornette. And, uh, yeah, that was, that's uh, Fuji's only champion, of course, was Yokozuna. He managed demolition for two periods of time. And he, uh, that, that was another one of the great dumb manager moments was when he, uh, when he turned against demolition while they were taking champions and joined the power, with the powers of pain. One of just the worst managerial decisions of all time. Ah, you, you don't turn on you guys when they're champions. <laughs> and uh, I, if, you, if you're if you going to do it, you should do it during a match where you can make them not champions. You did it during the yeah. Survivor Series match. It's pointless. I'm not sure they wound up winning that match, to be honest with you. Probably not. They didn't win a whole lot. No, certainly not once Mr. Fuji got hold of them. It was a bad time for everybody involved. And I uh, also managed the, the Berserker. Uh, the the Hussman. Uh, uh, Zerker was always a favorite in the Royal Rumble, of course, because his finisher was throwing guys over the top rope. <laughs> Which he used liberally during the NWA days because he could get him disqualified. But Yeah, that wouldn't be a good idea. But, uh, and uh, I think uh, I've run out of Mr. Fuji's uh, 
clients. Were they all of them? Uh, he might have had a few more here or there, but those are the ones that I remember. Uh, those particular group of guys. Yeah, Jimmy Hart we mentioned a little bit earlier. And, uh, of course, we mentioned <sighs> the Hart Foundation. Mentioned Anybody with a phone. megaphone. Anybody yeah, with yeah. a megaphone. You're going to hate Girl it. Girl is not a fan. Girl Matsu is not a fan of megaphone. Yeah, uh, and, well, you take that and you add it to Jimmy Hart's voice. <laughs> Which is annoying enough as it is, you know. You know, there are some guys who just have vocal qualities that make you want to strangle Kitten. And Jimmy Hart was one of those guys. And then he talked fast, and he was bouncing around. And I was shocked when his charges were baby faces, that people still didn't want to kill him. Well, that's why I feel with Paul Kerrigan. <laughs> Paul Kerrigan is the one guy that can make people, make people not want to kill Jimmy Hart. Uh, and even that didn't work out so well in WCW because people were just sick of Hogan at that. Yeah, uh, that's sure. But uh, I mentioned Gorilla Monsoon there a second ago, and that reminds me of somebody else who we didn't mention up until this point. Who was a, uh, even though he wasn't in the ring for much, he's still one of the top, one of the top heel voices in WWF for sure. A guy who established what the heels were thinking and doing at all times, so and respect for them. Of course, from the commentary group, Jesse the Body Ventura. Oh, God, he was, he remains, I think, the benchmark for a good heel commentator. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I mean, he was, he was, he told like it was. <laughs> he did. It didn't matter what it was. He told it like it was. The thing that I liked about him, it wasn't just that he would always kind of, you know, side with the heels and, oh, if he's not caught, it's not cheating. And, oh, the, the referee didn't see that. And he, his yearly promise to come out of retirement and take the title off of Hogan which is always oh, yeah. good for a laugh. But <laughs> yeah. what killed me about, what, what always helped me with him was he would, he, ended, he added this air of legitimacy to himself when he, because every now and then he gave credit to the babyface. And it yeah. didn't happen often. It was um, infrequent, to say the least. But, I mean, the two instances that stick out to my mind, as far as him just giving credit, both come from WrestleMania three actually, uh, when calling the Savage Steamboat match, and he says a couple of times, yeah, I'll give the Dragon credit. He's survived where a lot of other guys would have given up by now. And that kind of went out the window after George Steele somewhat factored into the finish, and, oh, he cheated, he was there, and he shouldn't have been there at ringside. He didn't know what he was going to do with that bell. What was he doing getting involved in the match that's going on? Which is just great, because you know, anyone justifying a heel's actions are is just... Awesome. <laughs> Anytime you have someone who can do it and sound like they mean it. But the other sure. one, uh, when he said, you know, I didn't believe Hogan could do it, but he did. And, I mean, that you know, went a little bit differently later because, oh, no, that was the opening one was a three count and you had Ventura factoring into how the rest of that played out. But, God, yeah, he was, as far as a heel commentator, he was, uh, I think to this day, the best. Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, in his prime, certainly, I think you could compare Bobby Heenan to him. Jerry Lawler in his prime was a really good heel commentator, and that's kind of been forgotten over the past, uh, what, 10 years or so of him doing nothing. But uh, in his prime, Lawler was really good. Oh, but, wait. Uh, his stuff, uh, sucking up to Mr. McMahon, was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was the only first came in. And we sucked up to Mr. McMahon, it was good. And somewhere around 2001 or two or whatever, it just kind of fell off from there, and he is what he is now. But, uh, yeah, Ventura was, uh, he. He wasn't the first to do commentary, but he's the first he'll do it on such a major platform. And uh, he did it, uh, 
like you said, better than just about anybody, certainly anybody that I can think of, for sure. And uh, definitely Jesse would give the, the the faces cred when they deserved it. And then sometimes he just get really mad. Like after WrestleMania 5 where Hulk Hogan wins, he goes on this just this epic tirade against Hogan. It's pretty great. <laughs> I have to imagine Gorilla Monsoon was just staring over at him in the booth. Okay. <laughs> hey, considering considering Hogan and Ventura's relationship at that point, how much of that was uh, how much of that was a work? Who knows? Well, you know, even the best work can take the degree of truth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, he was Tony Schiavone were underrated. The pairing, I thought, and. Uh, that That's a pairing, yes. I mean, uh, yeah. it's so sad that we have negative memories of Shivani because of how browbeaten the guy got towards the end of WCW. Yeah, but when Shivani was on, he was good. Yeah, him and Jesse had some great chemistry. Better than better better than Jesse and Jim Ross did. They, they, you know? I thought that Jesse yeah. got better once Tony got introduced in the mix. Like uh, Jim Ross just wasn't having any of Jesse's uh, stick for whatever reason at that point. Maybe Jr. was upset with things behind the scenes or whatever, but. Uh, yeah, Tony definitely played along with it more. He would uh, set Jesse up to just have Jesse go off on his uh, rants and tirades and whatnot. And uh, it's definitely a definitely good pairing. I, I mean, you still take you probably still take Corella over Tony certainly, but uh, you know, good times. Yeah, they they had some fun. I imagine Jr. just didn't know how to deal with. Uh, might not have been as familiar with how to deal with the guy who does shtick most of the time. Then he got yeah, into, what's that with Waller? Figured, that's all Waller does is shtick. Yeah, well, once he got paired with Waller, he could finally figure it out. But at that time, he wasn't really used to it. Although he should have been, because he, I know he, he he came with Cornette before. Cornette was a heel for part of that, and I don't know. I think maybe Jr. just didn't like him. That's a possibility. And it, you know, crazier things have happened than that one human being not especially liking another human being. <laughs> And it affecting the work sometimes. Uh, you know, it, it could happen. It's a possibility. You know, who would have thought? All right. I think that's everyone I wanted to cover on this particular stretch of time. Uh, again, unless and I, unless you have someone else that just like your light bulb moment goes, oh, wait, we have to talk about so-and-so. Uh, yeah, if you I'm, don't... Sorry, go ahead. Um, I'm not even sure if this is, This guy was around for part of the time in the day. If you did have a brief run with Hulk, with Hulk Hogan... Uh, uh, the Ugandan giant Kamala. Ah, oh, Kamala. What is it about? He had a run in a couple of different places. Kamala had a he had a pretty you know yeah more than one place. He had a couple of decent runs. Well, what was it in uh, a world class? Yeah. Well, here's my question. I mean, he was billed as I mean, he was kind of more of the monster heel mold everywhere except WWF at the time, wasn't he? I mean, and then they had something different. With the, I, could I, yeah. I just seem to recall them portraying him a little more comedically, and that might just be my memory being faulty. Well, later on, um, when they first brought him in, they had him do the feud with Hogan, and they did some uh, they did some house show runs, and those did pretty well. Uh, for they just did pretty well with Hogan and Kamala, and later on they did make him more comedic, especially when they brought him back and then uh, they had with oh, Harvey yeah. Whippleman, and and then he was with Slick, and he. Uh, became a man and became a good guy, whatever. He did become comedic later on, but uh, certainly back in the mid-'80s, uh, Kamala was pretty much a monster wherever he went, whether it was Memphis Restart or World Class or Mid-South or, you know, in the, the F and Time time. So what, what is it about the savage that, guys? that works so well yeah, because, as an archetype? Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Those are good heels to have, the big, the big savage guys that don't talk. And I'm not sure you see enough of those in this day and age. 
I mean, even Rusev talked on Monday for God's sake. Well, Rusev's... I don't mind that Rusev does because he's done it in promos before. I mean, some of the hype packages featured him speaking. So it's not that he can't speak, it's that he chooses not to most of the time. But, I mean, even a few years ago, we saw that with Umaga. And he got over pretty pretty big. He got over a lot bigger than I think uh, most people expect him to. I mean, you don't think that, you know, in the early 2000s, mid to late 2000s, you could have a savage from the Isle of Samoa who doesn't speak and just screams a lot, and that it would work. But You wouldn't think so. But it did. And, I mean, Sometimes part of that... Sometimes just works. <laughs> you, you know, you don't have to overthink some things. <laughs> I think that we yeah, as yes. a society accept that there are places in the world where we could, where you could go and find a person like Umaga who doesn't speak and is more than a little willing to just try and kill you. And somebody like Umaga, who's a, like a Kamala, who's a Ugandan savage, and might just eat you, because that's just kind of how things work from time to time. But uh, yeah. as I was thinking about Kamala, and then Africa pops in my mind. And, of course, uh, i I, I got to give a little bit of love to uh, the Slickster's combination of Twin Towers, the big boss man. Boss man had a pretty good series of, of house shows with Hulk Hogan, they had a pretty darn good cage match on Saturday Night's Main Events. Uh, Bossman, they're known as a face in WWF for sure. I mean, he was a face for most of the time in WWF. But uh, certainly in the late 80s when he first came in, he was, uh, he was a pretty darn good uh, heel. Of course, Big Bubba, Big Bubba Rogers and NWA. But uh, Ray Trailer, one of those guys who uh, he, could, he could go for a guy his size. He had, uh, he had a good personality and whatnot. Probably gets a little bit overlooked because, you know, we do tend to have a bias against the bigger guys from time to time. But uh, I he was definitely good in his role. And then you had the uh, Askin Dream Akeem, which was uh, interesting, <laughs> to say the least. One man gang. Yeah. Now, the Where gang is pretty legit, though. He was from the, he was from deep, dark Africa. <laughs> no, when he was actually, like, legitimately, where was he from? Oh, the one man gang was, uh, he was built from Chicago. I once said, and I wouldn't be surprised if he was attacked from Chicago. Yeah, that's probably about right. So, but let's take a big, uh, a very large, somewhat overweight white guy and pill him from Africa. Yeah, Especially I'm not deepest, really sure darkest the Africa. That's what the I mean, process was behind that one. I mean, you could go with South Africa and maybe get away with it. But no, deepest, darkest Africa. But deepest, darkest hang Africa. Hang out with Oh, man. They actually they got to run with Hogan and Savage there for a brief period of time. Yeah. Which is believable because they're pretty big fucking dudes. Both big guys, and like you said, Bossman could actually work. I mean, I agree with you. He tends to get overlooked when people look back on that time frame, but, you know, he was usually, he was in good shape. I mean, I think part of the other reason we kind of overlook him is he came up, uh, rose to prominence during the time when gimmicks were more important. Oh, excuse me. When, you know when getting your gimmick over was more important than overall match quality. But like you said, his stuff with Hogan was really good. I mean, we're not talking, you know, elite upper echelon level, but that was, that was some real, there was some really good stuff that they did. I mean, that uh, that that cage match has a superplex off the top of the cage or something like that, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And that was not just Bossman was uh, at his heavier, his heavier days during that time period. He got really skinny later on when he became a good guy. It's yeah, kind of weird because it's weird when you're watching when you watch the old pay-per-views. You're kind of going through them and whatnot. Like Bossman's really fat there for a while, and then he gets really skinny. Kind of weird. Yeah, I mean his uh, the la- his last run uh, with WWF, uh, he was really. I mean, 
you wouldn't necessarily put those two guys next to each other, and if you didn't have the facial uh, similarities, you wouldn't necessarily think they were the same guy. He lost a fair amount of weight there. Yeah, uh, that he did. And uh, last man, and when, when he was a heel, he was definitely a heel. He was not one of those guys uh, trying to be popular. He would, uh, he, he would stretch the limits a little bit. He would be that uh, evil prison guard that beat people up with a nightstick for negative reasons. Oh, yeah, and, and that, that's a, such a classic cinematic trope. I mean, even in the 80s, we all knew that in movies you had the sadistic prison guard or the redneck cop who abuses his authority, and he played yeah. that so very well. That he did. That he did. But, uh, yeah, and I think that's, that's all the major people I'd want, to, I'd want to talk about. I mean, I'm not going to delve into Dino Bravo. Nah, we don't need, I don't think anybody unless needs to Unless they're a big Dino fan. Uh, earthquake, uh, earthquake was underrated. Uh, earthquake and I thought both of the natural disasters were pretty good. Sure. Uh, well, Typhoon, um, Typhoon had his moments. Uh, later on, there was the unfortunate incident where he became a shockmaster. Yeah. <laughs> that one wasn't too good, but uh, I mean, Earthquake got to the point. Got, earthquake got himself over enough to be a viable Hulk Hogan opponent in 1990, which is always a good thing to be. And uh, natural disasters were a pretty badass tag team. You could throw them against the guys like the Legion of Doom, and you'd be kind of wondering if the Legion of Doom could beat them. That's like one of the big knocks from the Road Warriors was you can really, really feel sorry for them because, like, you know, they can't be hurt. But against natural disasters, you kind of think, okay, this this is the match right here. Yeah, they're not squashing the little guys. This, these are, you know, what are we going to get out of this? And, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Earthquake had the ability, I mean, when he crushed Hogan's ribs, yeah. you legitimately, won, you wondered, wait a, did he, wait a minute, wait, you may have just killed Hulk Hogan? My good friend, the Voodoo Penguin, sent Hulk Hogan a get well card. You know, had I been a big fan about that time, I probably would have too. I mean, it, and it was that believable. I mean, you know, and Earthquake looked the part, Hogan sold it well. I mean, he was just, uh, he was just like making a movie at that time period, wasn't he? Yeah, um, I think it might have been Suburban. Ah. It was the Oh, that movie. Oh, yeah, and, and Zeus. Oh, that was a... Zeus was a bad idea. Just a little bit. I think it was Suburban yeah. Commando. I don't think they played up comedic fun as you could have had between him and Christopher Lloyd. Oh, probably not. It's been a, it's been a while since I uh, watched that one. I'll say that. The Undertaker's in that, too, if memory serves. I He had some kind of a... A uh, bit part or something. I want to say hey, oh yeah, no, he was one of the uh, one of the two intergalactic bounty hunters who never spoke, and then he did at the end, and like a little kid's voice comes out. Oh, and uh, the big fun. payoff is Hogan looking at him, going, "Oh, so that's why you guys never spoke, brother." <laughs> All right, uh, Steve, it's been a, a lot of fun having you on here. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, no problem. It's been a good time. I like to spread out my podcasting wings a little bit here, appear over here on the. Is it the Rodlich Broadcasting Network thing? Yep. Well, you're yeah, a mainstay I'm, of the Zonka Podcasting Network. That's right. That's right. And uh, I've we've I've talked with Mark before, and since then I've not talked with you before, so it's been a good time. And uh, of course, you'll be you're going through all the uh, wrestling bad guys. Is that right? That's my goal. Cool. Cool. So, be so I may ask time. you back. Here's a disclaimer. You've been on here once. I may ask you back in the future. Okay. Well, if, if the schedule works out, we'll see how we'll see how things go. Unfortunately, me and Larry keep having our schedules not work out, which is kind of a shame because now that's it. Larry's kind of busy because you know he runs the internet pretty much. 
like <laughs> he's the king of, of the. He's like the king. He's he's the king of stuff, and he's a very busy man. So it's tough for us to get together. But uh, I do a weekly podcast with Jeremy Lambert. It's called the. It's called Crowd Goes Wilder and uh, wrestling and basically whatever's on our minds. So we do that. And of course, over at AllTeam.com, me and Trent Howell, the Voodoo Penguin, we do the Ocho once uh, every couple weeks, and that is also a good time. And uh, that's pretty much all I have to plug. I did the 411 Wrestling Hot 100 a couple weeks ago, so I don't have to do another article for another year. Pretty excited. <laughs> it's a good gig. Watch yeah, all the women's uh, wrestling, pick out pictures, rank them. Uh, that's all I can handle right now, man. <laughs> that's all I need to handle, for, for God's sake. Uh, yeah, good times. Uh, I'm glad you had me on. Yeah, I'm glad. And you show up once a year, you get the most clicks on the internet for a couple of weeks. It ain't a bad gig, I, I will say that. It's a lot better than, you know, like, watching shows and talking about them. Yeah, I, I imagine it would be, especially some of the shows that have come out recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did the Raw tirade for a little bit, and then I... It was okay heading to WrestleMania. And since WrestleMania, everything's uh, gone downhill. I, I asked Larry not to write about it. <laughs> All right. Well, again, uh, you're welcome back. And just as a point of reference, I do take requests. I have my schedule kind of thought out. But if there's any, a, if there's ever a you know a topic, a specific individual that you would like to come on and talk about, uh, just hit me up, and I'd be more than happy to have you back. All right, will do. Thank you very much. All right, thank you. As for my plugs, I'll go ahead and get these out of the way, and then we can then we'll just uh, hit the final soundbite here. Uh, my weekly column, Locked in the Guillotine, is up in the MMA section of 411mania.com. This week I'm looking at the good things that have come out of the UFC's policy of expansion, diversification of revenue, uh, accessibility of the product, and all that fun stuff to kind of complement my point last week about how dare they run 43 shows a year. So the other side of the coin this week, and... I host the weekly 411 Ground and Pound radio show every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern. This week we'll have a double review and a preview. We'll be reviewing UFC Fight Night 45, Miller vs. Cerrone. Uh, you can read the report in four, at 411mania.com. Larry Zonka covered it. So naturally we got a night of awesome fights. If you, want a night that, uh, if you want a day that will not have awesome fights, this Saturday, UFC Fight Night 46, only available on Fight Pass. Uh, McGregor vs. Brandau, live from Dublin at 10.30 in the morning where I live. Uh, I'll be covering it. So, the night, <laughs> the night of fights is going to suck. I have my voodoo curse. It's looming over my head. So, I'll have your live coverage for that if you don't have Fight Pass or you just, yeah, I assume, or you don't want to bother finding someone who has a stream of their Fight Pass account, however you come across that. Uh, all of your coverage there. We'll be reviewing both of those this Sunday, and we will be previewing UFC on Fox 12, headlined by ruthless Robbie Lawler fighting Matt the Immortal Brown for a UFC welterweight title shot, assuming Johnny Hendricks ever repairs his glavin. Uh, be sure to check out all the great shows here on the Radlich and Broadcasting Network. Uh, every other Wednesday, Jason Teasley is from the Cheap Seats, uh, sports cast himself, Jesse Starcher, Robert Cooper. A lot of fun if you're big into sports. Uh, the Metal Hammer of Doom every other Thursday. Uh, their last episode looked at... wasn't Body Count. Oh, wait, I think it was in their upcoming one. Or their last one was Steel Panther. I can't remember. I, re I wish I could. I should. But every other Thursday, you get the Metal Hammer of Doom, Mark Radlitz, Robert Cooper. 
the Thursdays that you don't have the Metal Hammer of Doom, you have the Long Road to Ruin, which uh, the upcoming episode is going to feature Mark and Sh- Mark Radlich and Sean Comer talking about Batman the Animated Series, the first season. Uh, you can follow the Long Road to Ruin. They have a Facebook page, so like them there. Say nice things, say mean things. Uh, we're all available on Stitcher and iTunes, so subscribe. We appreciate it. Rate us five stars or whatever you think we're worth, preferably more than one. That's all I ask. My ego is fragile. And we appreciate all the comments and criticisms that you give us. We try to improve. We understand you have hundreds of thousands, if not potentially millions, of these podcasts to choose from, and you choose ours. So thank you very much for that. And don't be afraid to tell a friend. If you know people who you think would like our product, we appreciate you letting them know about it. We're trying to grow something here. Because one of these days I want to be able to read copy and get paid for it, and not just shill things I enjoy. All right, that's going to wrap us up here. So for Steve Cook, 411 Luminary and longtime collaborator in the Zonka Podcasting Network, I'm Robert Winfrey, reminding you that if you don't have a decent bad guy, your hero is just a weirdo in tights. So say goodnight to the bad guy.